When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Great to be here. It's funny. I, I usually, if there's very funny email that I get, I usually wait until Tuesday. We do a dedicated segment all about the email. Uh, love mail, hate mail. If it's witty, if it's interesting, if it's different, if it's creative, I will read it on Tuesday. More on that uh, later. But there's one piece of mail that I cannot avoid reading and bringing to your attention because I'm sure there are a lot of people that feel this way. This is from a listener named Maria. No subject, but I think she says it all when she says the following in this email. I'll listen tonight just to hear Steve Cates that you stole from Coast. Otherwise, you're a snoozer. Now, I certainly disagree that I'm a snoozer. I I happen to think I'm very exciting, very compelling, and I've kept uh, more people awake in this city than uh, bad Mexican food. That being said, I think that if you do not like anything about me, anything about this show, anything that I do or say on a regular basis, you are going to want to listen loudly. Turn up the volume on your radio, mobile phone, computer, smart device, whatever, or your your smart speaker, because for the next hour, you are going to be treated to a bevy of information and maybe even a little entertainment From Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster, an edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space, and one of our most popular guests. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, Frank, good morning. Good to be back here on 77 WABC. And, hey, how about that day? Now that it's moved one day forward in time, 2-2-22, which we've been talking about here in Phoenix and on media we call it a palindrome. That's a weird name, and I had to look this up myself. A palindrome is a word or a sequence that's the same forward or backwards. So if you, obviously it took the date of 2222. That's easy to understand, but it'd be like words like civic or kayak. So isn't that unusual? But imagine what it's going to be like when it returns, uh, turns to June 6th of 2066. Uh, well, is, th- is that the next uh, palindrome date? Well, no, we'd have, obviously, we have to have, what, March the 3rd oh, right. of, okay. of uh, 2033, so a long-distant future. But, hey, I thought that was kind of cool that uh, I learned something myself today in the, the new word, palindrome. So, I, see, I did know what a palindrome was, and it's always a very challenging que- uh, category on Jeopardy. The trick is not just remembering words like uh, radar, but once it gets into sentences, like, oh, yeah. uh, like, Madam, I'm Adam, or, or Never Odd, or even, to try and come up with it as fast as those Jeopardy contestants, I, I'm, just, I'm just lost. Now, 
Uh, yes. We've seen a lot of records being set, but one of the records that has not gotten some of the attention that some sports records has have of late and uh, maybe even some political records has to do with The Sun. Four days ago, there was a headline that said The Sun has been erup- erup- uh, erupting nonstop this month and giant flares are incoming. Three days ago, another headline, Solar Prominence Breaks Record on Active Sun. Five days ago, the sun has erupted nonstop all month, and there are more giant flares coming. For starters, Steve, what's behind all of this solar activity, and what does it mean for those of us that are forced to live here on Earth? Well, Frank, it's an interesting series of questions, but we begin, of course, with the solar cycle 25. Each of these solar cycles, they're spaced about 11 and a half years apart, and sometimes they stretch longer or shorter. But what we're finding out here, the scientists and astrophysicists that kind of predict what these, you know, just like the stock market, they're not always right as far as future trends. But this one, they were saying, solar cycle 25, may not be as intense as what we had in the past. But I'm kind of thinking differently, and here's the reason, just like you mentioned before, big news, big headlines. Just the other day, the European Space Agency confirmed with its solar orbiter spacecraft, they captured, as you mentioned, this amazing big prominence. And what is that? It's outgassing material from the upper areas of the sun. The visible disk of the sun, as I've mentioned on a few of our other shows, is called the photosphere. And that's about 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Ouch. And the sun is too hot to burn because it's a big fusion ball. But this one, Frank, has stretched outward probably, and say I say probably because nobody knows the exact distance because it's a fluid type of thing, meaning it's in motion, about 2 million miles away and outward from the sun. But lucky for us, the interesting news here is so everybody can sleep well and hopefully sleep in peace for the next couple of days because we don't know what's going to happen in the future, that this particular blast was not directed at the Earth. And if it was there would be a lot of news that would be probably equally as important to what's happening with the invasion in the Ukraine. But this is interesting, Frank. Just think about this. The diameter of the sun is 864,000 miles to be almost precise. So this object, this big blast of material off the surface of the photosphere, stretches out. And you can see it in some of the images, which are quite interesting. And on various websites, you can actually see the entire video, which could last probably only about 25 seconds, But isn't that amazing, Frank? I mean, that's incredible. So the point is, we don't really know what's going to happen with this solar cycle, not to alarm people. But just remember this, that particular group of, uh, you know, solar activity, as we call it, was probably from a region we called Active Region 2936. And in simple language, each of these sunspot groups are called active regions. And that was the number that they assigned to this one since the beginning of other solar cycles. But what's amazing about this, Frank, and I'll be brief, is that the spot that actually was on the sun when we did our last show a couple of weeks ago, has continued to go around the far side of the sun and has returned, but this time, and they don't normally last that long, it's now active region 2954, and get set, because if this one starts to evolve, well, let's hope and uh, do our, you know, dance or whatever we do to keep out the solar rays, but... Nobody knows. It's probably going to be a much more intense solar cycle. Well, when you say what could happen in terms of disruptions to things like radio waves, electronics, or, or technology here? Well, Frank, if we get on the scale, the highest scale of these solar flares, we, we call them an X-level flare, the way up at the top, high up in the alphabet. If that were to come as a direct blast toward the Earth, we could see, and again, not to be alarmist here, but to be factual and answer the question, 
is we could see some serious disruptions of the satellite communications we have, the GPS systems that we have, not only the United States, but other nations that use their own internal GPS, I'm sure like Russia and China and other countries and third world nations. But it's also interesting that as we see in the past, the great railroad storm, the great railroad solar storm, almost about 100 more years ago in 1921, I've mentioned this before, it actually set telegraph lines on fire because mm. of the induction of so many of these protons. This is what you have to be careful of. The, the protons from the sun, very powerful. They seemingly go through lots of things, and they pass through bodies very quickly. So who knows? But uh, on a more serious answer, let's just hope that we don't see any direct line of sight like a shotgun blast would be directed right toward the earth. Mm, uh, that is for sure. Talking with Steve Cates, he's my guest for the hour. If you want to call in with a question on anything that's happening in space or with respect to astronomy, give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Steve, I've heard from a lot of listeners that you've yes. got them doing the same thing that you've got me doing, which <laughs> is staring at the night sky, maybe with binoculars, maybe with a telescope, and trying to look at the different interesting things that are in the sky on a regular basis. If people turn their heads upward right now, hopefully they won't do it while they're driving, what can yeah. they find in the night sky? Well, Frank, as we find the moon to be moving on to its last quarter phase, we just had that fantastic, every month I consider the full moon to be beautiful, the appropriately named full snow moon. We find that the moon wanes now. So what people can see if you have a clear sky Obviously, many of the planets, the big activity for planets, Frank, is going to appear in the morning sky. And I'm going to suggest this weekend, if your skies are clear in the WABC listening area, of course, we pray for that as all the time so people can see things. Even in brightly lit areas like New York City, let's say right in the city environs, if you were to look into the southeast sky just about an hour before sunrise, let's say toward the weekend to be precise, you're going to get to see this most magnificent conjunction. What I'm talking about is the planet Venus, the goddess of love and beauty. What an amazing planet. How bright, appropriately named, and obviously one of the closest planets. We've mentioned before that Venus, of all the major planets of the solar system, gets even closer than the planet Mars. And people always thought that Mars was the closest interloper or planet. Venus can get within 25 million miles of the Earth. But now... Venus happens to appear close to the Earth, not at an all-time closeness, and it appears like a crescent shape. So if you're looking with the naked eye, it's just simply beautiful. And the conjunction of that with the moon, I think, makes that a most memorable event as we move into the weekend. And that should be something quite spectacular for people to see. But, Frank, we also have some other late-breaking things that people can actually see. And then we talk about Earth satellites. So if people have a pen or, you know, when they write this down, a pencil, I'll repeat this if we have time. Mm. Two of the major Earth satellites that you can actually see, one, of course, the natural big one in the sky, the International Space Station, makes another passage right over the New York listening area and viewing area on the morning of February the 24th. That happens during the early morning hours, like around 5 a.m. But what you want to be seeing is this object is going to be very bright. So that's about 28 hours from now. Absolutely. And it's going to be passing right by the North Star. So if you're looking in the northern part of the sky and your sky is clear, the North Star is not the brightest star, but it's pretty easy to see. So as you see this object slowly moving through the sky, it'll be going from the north to the northeast part of the sky. What you're actually seeing, if you actually see it live, you're actually seeing it as if it was traversing right over Toronto, Canada. So the angle that you're seeing that is it's part of the north, but from us, how far is Toronto from the New York area? What, maybe four or 500 miles as we would drive, but maybe less if we fly. 
But here's something else that I think is also fascinating. If you want to have an opportunity, you will have an opportunity to see the Chinese Tiangong Space Station on the early morning hours of February the 26th, Saturday morning, at exactly 5.37 a.m. local time. High in the south at that time, with clear skies, you'll see this object moving, not as bright as the space station, but so pretty much easy to see with the naked eye, as about an average bright star in the sky, moving high from the south to the east in the sky. But if folks want to do more precision work on this, here's the site that we always recommend for this. Go to heavens-above.com, heavens-above.com. And it's so fun, Frank, because what people can do, and I've done it many, many times at an outdoor barbecue, let's say, and I tell people, you know, in five minutes, over the top of that tree, the space station is going to show up. And they go, what are you talking about? Well, sure enough, you did the calculations, like everybody listening. Just plug in your city. You can get to see which objects are coming by. And lo and behold, just like clockwork, isn't that incredible? The largest man-made object in space, yeah, it flew right over the top of the tree and over the barbecue, and people were like, now that is pretty cool. So wow. you can do that yourself. Now, the International Space Station that's going to be in our viewing area tomorrow, that's something that we can view with the naked eye? That's not something that we're going to need uh, anything oh, no. special for? No, the naked eye on this one, as we talk in magnitudes here, and I don't want to get overly precise, but just want to give people the right answer yeah, always. thank you. Here it is. If you look at the brilliance of objects in the sky, the higher the negative number, what we call magnitude, the brighter. The brightest thing in the sky is the sun. It checks in on that side of the scale, on the negative side, at a 26. A full moon is a minus 12. And then we have Venus at about minus 4. So if you've ever seen Venus in the sky, or you will when you look into the southeast or in the early morning hours, this object, the ISS, is about minus 3. So the answer is simple. You don't need a pair of binoculars to see it. It is the brightest of the man-made objects in the sky. And in many cases, there are actually people. I, I, I am, it's amazing. I'm just totally amazed, Frank, how they do this. Some have the fairly large telescope with the motor drive, and they follow it and take pictures. And guess what you can see? Because it's only about 260 miles up as you would go from the ground. You can see all the detail on the space station with all the solar panels and all the modules attached, and even some of the little spacecraft that do attach to bring astronauts and cosmonauts back. And that's amazing, but remember, it's only about 260 miles right above your head. Wow. Uh, 800-848-WABC, if you've got questions, uh, 1-800-848-9222. Me, uh, before the board fills up with too many and people can't get through, a lot of people are already queuing up to uh, ask you about a wide variety of subjects. Al is here in New York City. Hello there, Al. Good morning, Mr. Murano. Great show. Good morning, Dr. Skye. Good morning, Al. Good uh, to see you. Good to be with you. Thank yeah. You. you know, I saw that satellite the other day. I remember seeing uh, Made in China, courtesy U.S. technology. <laughs> there you go. I love it there, Al. You know, it's yeah. amazing. That's what, probably what you could see with the, with the camera and the big telescope that I was talking about. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I, I've seen when I was a kid, I would be up at camp. They say, oh, look at the shooting stars. You look, you look. Yeah, I might see something fly by. But once, at 10 o'clock at night, once I saw... Have you ever seen like when a uh, a flare gun goes off? Yes. Or if you're in the army or the navy and you see that, sure. you know, when they they put the uh, unbelievable, I saw this thing go by so quick, the whole sky lit up. So oh, yeah. uh, I guess that's an, a meteorite. Now my question to you is this: uh, How often do we hear now now and then a meteorite came so close? I mean, in reality, it's still a quarter million miles or whatever, but they don't see it coming. 
And what I heard was, I don't know if this is correct. Please help me if you could on this. Sure. It appears that the way we've been looking at them, there's actually a distortion and it's in an oblique angle that we're thinking, no, not near us. And then we find out for the correction that guess what? It really is close to us. Oh, yeah. You know, Al, you're uh, onto something big. Recently. Yeah, you're onto something big here. What you're seeing when you see these objects, like you were describing, the brighter ones, they're called fireballs. And oh, it was unbelievable. Are, oh, yeah, this is amazing. And actually, it's better than some of the Fourth of July rockets. And people have said, wow, you know, what the heck was that? But no, you're actually seeing something. Because it's so when you look. Oh, yeah, when you look at a fireball, Al, this is probably the average height that that is above the Earth. You're probably looking at something that's about 50 or 60 miles, maybe even a little higher, above you. And what's surprising, and this is amazing too, Frank, when you see these objects, most of these are not the size of a basketball. I mean, that would be tremendously bright, though those things are called bolides. And they like they a little speck. Oh, yeah, this, this little thing that we're talking about here, Al, is amazing. The size of it's probably the average size of these meteors that you see in the sky, the shooting star, so-called. They're about the size uh-huh. of a grain of sand. People can't believe that, but they're going so fast, and they're incinerating. Can I ask you, the one that hit Russia in the early 1900s, that just devastated. I think they called the tongue or something. You what got was it. the size of that? Well, it was called that the was just Tunguska. unbelievable. Right, the Tunguska event that happened on June the 30th, 1908. The object purportedly was about maybe 100 to 150 feet in diameter. And now the other one that's probably even more of a record breaker is right here in my home state of Arizona. The alleged meteor crater that's up there just to the right of Flagstaff, Arizona. Oh, that's huge. Oh, yeah. It was created. And people need to see this, Frank. I don't know. I mean, not to be part of the Tourism Bureau of Arizona, but it's (laughs) over a mile wide. Al, it was created by an object thought to be only 200 feet in diameter. 50,000 years ago, came in at an angle like 30 degrees, and I can imagine it's like having a nuclear weapon hit the ground. That's one of the best preserved craters, and that was only 200 feet across. And the other one that happened in uh, in Russia back in, in 2013, that one, the Chelyabinsk event, that was a 66-foot in diameter object, and that alone sent about 1,000 or more people to the hospital, not because of the object cracking up and hitting them, but it was the that incredible was daylight one, right? Oh, yeah, that's the one that's so documented on YouTube. But that one, Al, was actually the, the, the blast effects of that were the shock wave that came through the atmosphere, breaking windows. And so many windows. Oh, it's amazing. Al, thank you. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your calls in just a minute. My guest for the hour is the one and only Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. If you want to know more about uh, the kind of stories that he's covering, not only should you keep listening, but you should check out the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. I get a lot of the content that uh, we do on this show uh, from that blog, at least having to do with space. And uh, it's really an incredible resource. Check it out, KTAR.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. Your splendor. Dark moon. What is the cause? 
Dark Moon by Gail Storm. Well, if you're somebody that enjoys just looking at the moon and wondering what else is out there and uh, having a more thorough understanding of the things that you are seeing, then you are listening to the right broadcast because we are joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran edutainer who has a great deal of expertise when it comes to space. And he's somebody that uh, we're very lucky to have on this show uh, regularly. He's also a regular on uh, the Cats Roundtable, our flagship broadcast every Sunday morning from 8 until 10 a.m. Steve, this is a pretty noteworthy week in the annals of uh, space exploration history. It was 60 years ago this week that John Glenn did something pretty extraordinary, didn't he? Absolutely. It's so amazing. I remember as a fellow New Yorker, Frank, watching with my family, just as a boy about six years young, we're watching on our little black and white television, as many, many people were, to see America's first astronaut to orbit the Earth, John Glenn. What an amazing story. What an amazing member of the Mercury 7. And that launch, as Walter Cronkite and others on different networks, you know, analyzed Walter Cronkite, of course, being like the the guru of all the space program missions, we remember it, but it's hard to believe that it's some 60 years ago that he was launched on top of that modified Atlas rocket and spending you know, some, a short amount of time in space. Because remember, a lot of people have it mixed up, and it's not their fault. It's just that in space history, when we say we go to space, we go to space. But Alan Shepard was the first American to go into space, but his was a suborbital flight which is very much like what Jeff Bezos is doing and what Elon Musk will be doing and Richard Branson is doing. He went up, but he actually went higher, Alan Shepard. He went up to about 101 miles, whereas the Bezos craft with Blue Origin goes upward a little higher than the 50-mile mark. So we have this first person for America to make this orbit around the Earth, but he wasn't the first person to orbit the Earth. Yuri Gagarin, the first, obviously, person to orbit the Earth, was, of course, the Russian cosmonaut, and he did that at a little earlier time. But what makes John Glenn's flight so interesting, in my opinion, is that from that launch on that modified Atlas rocket, he orbited the Earth three times, was in space for about four hours and 55 minutes and some odd seconds. But the backstory here is kind of interesting. As he's in, in that launch mode, he's looking out his window, and he could see all of the peninsula of Florida. And that was a big deal then, because nobody really got to get up that high. But he was traveling at about four and a half miles per second to do your 17,000 mile an hour thing to go into Earth orbit. But here's what the backstory is. It's interesting. Mission Control noticed a flashing light on one of their consoles, and it had something to do with a thing that's so important, Frank, called the heat shield. And they were getting this intermittent light coming off, like if you're driving your car and you're getting a check engine light maybe flashing or something, and you're going, what the heck is that? Well, they didn't actually tell John Glenn what was going on, but he was smart enough to kind of figure it out. They simply thought that the heat shield was about to detach, and that's not a good thing, obviously, when you're trying to come back at such high velocities and great temperatures. So the good news is that was a faulty light. He came back to Earth, and it's so amazing because a lot of people forget that he actually went back to space when he was, what, 77 years young Mm. on another ride on the American space shuttle. But I had the honor. I don't know. Have you ever spoken with, with uh, John Glenn? No, uh, never. I never have. I, uh, I wanted to very badly, but uh, just didn't work out. We had a great interview with him. And what was, it, what was it all about, Frank? It was all about Space Day. And, you know, what a professional. I mean, that's when he was in the Senate. 
you know, he, he was apologizing, and he said to me on, on this interview, he said, don't have to apologize. My voice sounds like Kermit the Frog today because of all the pollen in Washington. And I was like, wow, you know, I just was enamored by this guy because who wouldn't be? I mean, oh, yeah, a, real a Marine, hero. a fighter pilot, and he sadly passed away, uh, what, at about 95 years old and on to the infinite. But I thought that's important because America and so many people got really motivated for the future of space because we did it. The Russians had done it, and now we've, we've felt that we had reached a higher plane, as we say, ad astra to the stars. You know, he is featured in that film, uh, Hidden Figures, which uh, did so well at the Academy yes. Awards a few years ago. Based on your knowledge of, uh, of history, putting aside its artistic contributions, how accurate is that film, Hidden Figures, as far as you are aware? Well, I remember seeing it a while ago, too, and I can only say this much, Frank. I think it's fairly accurate because it goes to talk about the backstory about how so many Americans, uh, black African-Americans, many women, of course, helped to get us to the uh, space area and move on to the moon. But I thought the depiction was actually pretty good. I mean, some movies go out and, you know, they do their own thing. Sometimes they say the books never follow you know, the, the, the screenwriters never, you know, follow what the book was or the original novels. But I thought it was pretty good. And, and I thought it did a good depiction of that entire time and gave that feeling about, you know, we seem to all be working together in the thing called the space race. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Philadelphia. Robert, you're on with Steve Cates. I uh, love the show. Enjoy both you guys a lot. Um, is there a way that we can, like, send questions to, to uh, Mr. Cates or Dr. Cates? through online or something? Oh, yeah. that's uh, Well, I'll give it out here. It's just very simple. My email, it's always welcome. We get them from many other places. Is just drsky, drskyshow, at gmail.com. And I take the time, as always, because I'm so grateful for the listeners, Frank, of your show and other shows that are interested in this subject. So drskyshow at gmail.com. I will be looking for you because I had something relating to gravity and, and electromagnetic sure. fields, but it's too weighty for now. But I'm curious <laughs> okay. about something, yes. and I don't want to sound ignorant, okay? But no. And I'm not going to make you harken back to Bugs Bunny jumping off the plane right before it hits the ground. But whenever, <laughs> okay. we, whenever we come back to Earth, there's always the, the risk of burning up because of the velocity that we're going at, and we don't have enough ablative shields or whatnot, right. why couldn't we just make ourselves come to a stop relative to Earth and let gravity pull us in slowly? Am I missing something? Well, I think we're all missing something, because unfortunately what we have, Robert, is gravity rules. And again, what I was talking about, about the possibility that his heat shield, John Glenn's, might have been you know detached. Lucky he wasn't. The reality is you're being pulled in so fast, and the most horrific example is some Russian cosmonauts that actually came back through the atmosphere when their heat shield and their parachute system didn't work. That was a very sad splat into the Earth. But again, I'd be more than happy to go into the real details with you if we have some opportunity to share that information with you. I appreciate it. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you, Robert. 800-848-WABC. Bill is in Huntington. Hello, Bill. When I was a child, I read in a science book about the green flash, and I looked at a lot of sunsets looking for the green flash. Do you believe in it? Absolutely, and I've seen it so many times. What it is, Bill, it's an atmospheric effect, and we all know that when the sun's setting or the moon's rising or the sun is rising, more likely when the sun is setting, you get to see that light through thicker layers of the atmosphere. And what happens, very simply, Bill, 
is that at that very last moment when the upper limb of the sun is slowly going down below the horizon, best seen, by the way, over an ocean, I have seen this. So it's what it's doing. It's refracting light like a prism. And for just a fraction of a second, you can, not always, not always, depends on the atmospheric uh, temperatures, you know, the different layers. There can be a couple of different thermal layers out in the ocean. The best thing I've ever seen was out in San Diego. And I'm sure you could see this, you know, if you're somewhere on the Atlantic Ocean, but you'd have to look to the west. And then another thing, there's also something called a blue flash, which is even more of a rare phenomenon. But it's a real atmospheric effect, Bill. It's called a green flash. And actually, there's some famous artists, forgive me for not knowing at this early hour, that have actually done drawings and done depictions of their artwork after seeing and becoming uh, enamored and enthused by seeing that rare atmospheric thing called the green flash. John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John. Hi, uh, it's Tom. Uh, good, good morning, Frank. Good morning, Dr. Sky. Good morning, uh, John. Is there an, isn't there an app for um, watching or tracking the stars and satellites, including the International Space Station? Well, there is. And what I was mentioning before there, I mean, these are public domain sites. Again, I, I'm thinking the best one that I can think of is heavens-above.com. To me, that one really rocks because you can put in your location anywhere, and it will calculate just right down to the second what satellites are visible. And if you really want to get fancy with that one, you can actually find on a given night, let's say, John and Bill and, and Frank, that we're sitting outside, let's say, in the super dark Arizona skies or up in upper New York State, you can actually tweak that thing to actually give you more satellites, meaning fainter and fainter and fainter, that you can have a list of satellites for a night that's probably about 2,000 satellites if you're in dark enough skies. It's that good, and it's accurate really well. It's right down to the minute. Interesting story I mentioned yesterday, and I'm curious to get your your mm-hmm. take on it, is yesterday, or actually I guess technically it was uh, two years ago, yesterday was the um, – the or not excuse me, not two years ago, two days ago. What, two, this week was the one-year anniversary of an American Airlines incident in New Mexico in which uh, an American Airlines uh, pilot – it seems to describe what can only be described as a, as a UFO on radio transmission. These transmissions have yes. been confirmed as authentic. Here's a little bit of the transmission. Have any targets up here? We just had something go right over the top of us. That I hate to say this looked like a long cylindrical object. It almost looked like a cruise missile type of thing moving really fast that went right over the top of us. That description was so detailed that it shook a lot of experts at the time, and it's been covered a great deal over the course of the last year. As somebody that follows aviation and astronomy and uh, that has a a keen interest in this stuff, what's your take on that? Well, Frank, it's amazing. It's one of the great mysteries out there. And now the whole entire UFO story has transferred to a whole new name called UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. And this is exactly one of the classics. And I really believe those pilots, obviously, they saw something. I have no idea what that was. But it also goes part and parcel to the very strange things that we're seeing within the last decade, up to and including, as as we have the United States Navy reporting, seeing these tic-tac-type objects, which totally defy every law of aerodynamics. And probably, I doubt very much if it's a man-made or earth-made, you know, a human-created type of craft. But it goes back. There's one story here, if we have a moment here, I just wanted to highlight because the strangeness of all this, probably one of the strangest stories that I've ever talked about or listened to or actually interviewed someone was the 1967 Maelstrom Air Force Base incident 
in which one of these gentlemen, he was a captain at the time, Captain Robert Salas, actually reported by his own, you know, the MPs on the base, the Air Force Military Police, they reported seeing these bright or a bright red object hover over these missile flights. They called it echo flight, where the nuclear missiles in the ground, the Minuteman missiles. This is so strange because even talking to this gentleman, he wrote a book called Faded Giant. And I didn't know this, but if a military uh, nuclear weapon system goes offline, it's simply referred to in the military jargon as a faded giant. So what happened really quickly is that this object, some red ball of energy, intentionally went over each one of these silos. I believe there were 10 in the ground in that one called Echo Flight. And what it did, Frank, it just shut down every one of the missiles. And when the engineers came back the next day to examine what had happened, to try to figure out what, what was this back in 1967, obviously something otherworldly, not only did it shut the missiles down, but those cables that attached to the bottom of these missiles, I'm not the rocket scientist there, but it's reported that there were probably like maybe 10-inch wide wires and cables. A lot of those were actually melted and shut down the entire uh, missile silos. So I'm saying we're seeing more and more of these things, but it goes back that some of these things, well, it's just, well, totally unexplainable. And, and maybe, without a doubt, otherworldly, other things that we don't know. And even mm. in modern day, airline pilots seeing more and more of these things flying over in the sky, uh, up to including these Tic Tacs. It's just strange. Th- th- there's been some thinking that 2022 could be a banner year for the, the cause of uh, UAP disclosure by the federal government. Do you buy that at all? I don't know. For the longest time, I'd like to be an optimist, Frank. But sincerely, I think, you know, I think we've been given, you know, the disinformation since day one on this whole thing. And I'd like to know, just like every single person out there, I'd like to know the real story of what Roswell was all about. What about the Corona crash or what about these other incidents around the world, not just here in America? But I would hope, but I have to be more of a pessimist on this. And the answer probably is we're probably not going to know the answer. I don't know why we're not going to know the answer. But again, one of my theories, and this is kind of interesting, I'm exploring this more, and who knows, maybe I'll even write a book about this. I think these phenomenon that we're seeing, like the Tic Tacs and so many of these others, are actually not from other planetary systems. I think what happened, Frank, and I know maybe listeners may think I'm a little off my chair here, but if you think about it, maybe the world, like the God forbid the Ukrainian crisis, escalates into a horrible war beyond our wildest dreams. Hopefully there's cooler heads. But let's say the human species winds up getting destroyed because of our own, you know, non, non-study of history, sure. and we sure. see it repeat. But the quick cut to the chase on it is, it's, to my life, it's in my mind thinking this way, that humankind went underground, they had to survive, but artificial intelligence came in and actually took over everything. So in the future, artificial intelligence understood how to bend time and space, which we're trying to figure out the whole world of quanta And the final analysis would be that what happens with these particular devices or or objects that we're seeing, and again, in my opinion, just one person out there, that this could be the future of which we see these artificial machines and even maybe sentient beings. Maybe those Tic Tacs are living organisms that come through the time-space-time continuum, through the whole thing of the warpage of time through an artificial intelligence experience, maybe not driven by future humans. Wow. What say you? Well, I, you know, I, I mentioned there was a Space.com mm-hmm. article which mentioned that sure. possibility, and I, I brought it up uh, because I think it's just fascinating uh, to is. think about that. I think it's it's really, sure. uh, really interesting. 800-848-WABC. Hudson is in the Bronx. Hello, Hudson. 
Wow, man. Great show, guys. That last thing you just said, I tried to write down everything. Amazing. Um, good morning, Gotcha. Thank gonna, you. Oh, good morning. Yeah, thank you, guys. Um, my question is going to sound so stupid now. Um, I, I got two of them. The first one is uh, my nephew is starting to get interested in this stuff. So just yeah. the two questions that I have is, uh, number one, uh, obviously we're from New York, but we're going to travel. Um, I've been in Australia, and I've seen the, the stars out there, you know, in the middle of the yes. desert. What's the, what's the closest place uh, to go camping where you can see anything close to that in the sky? And you are right in the New York metro area. I'm sorry. I didn't in the Bronx. Yeah, he's in, in the, the Bronx. Bronx. Oh, okay. Well, very simple. My suggestion as a you know fellow New Yorker in the past, we used to do a lot of programs up at a place called High Point State Park, which is right at the top tip of New Jersey up there near Port Jervis. And I don't think the skies, Frank and Hudson, have changed that much. But getting away from the city lights even that far or that close, I should say, is great. But if you really want to take an excursion, I would head when the weather kind of warms up a little better, maybe up through upper New York State as you move up just south of Montreal, like Plattsburgh area and the lakes up there. I mean, I've seen skies uh, that close to the New York area that are pretty darn good. And up into New Hampshire, if you want to travel a little farther, there's still some good dark skies but New Jersey's uh, high point, that's a place that I believe is uh, dramatically good. Well, did you have a second question, Hudson? I do, yeah, and thank you for that. The second question is um, I got I got a really cheap, um, you know, telescope for them. It's a, mm-hmm. It was a Vivitar 60 times 120, whatever. What's, okay. what's the best one on the market um, that's in a price range for, for a kid that's just – looking to see something in the sky like all the things that you said before, which I wrote down all the times and dates for. (laughs) Hudson here, this is a great question. I'll answer it here. My suggestion is if you're going to go out and buy maybe a little store-bought telescope and you're looking for the best, there's a little type of telescope called a Dobsonian, just that name, Dobsonian. If you look them up, you can get like a little six-inch telescope. They're basic. You know, they don't have all the fancy motors and everything. You don't really need that. It's just a tube, good piece of glass in the bottom. You know, it's a mirror. You, it puts in a little cradle. It's like, like, it looks almost look like something you made in home shop you know, or in school shop. But it's something that you could probably buy for a couple of hundred dollars. They're all over the Internet. A little Dobsonian telescope. Believe me, it, it's, it's the coolest little thing. And, and for the money, you get to see uh, some pretty darn good things with that. That's By the way, two very good questions, uh, Hudson. Excellent questions. Yes, both. thank you, Hudson. Thank you. 800 uh, we're talking with uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You can check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. Uh, this is exactly the kind of content that I'd love to see focused on uh, our website one day at wabcradio.com because it's the kind of thing you really can only hear from uh, Dr. Sky. Steve, what is a space elevator? You know, this is something fascinating. Everybody's concerned today about getting rockets up. And by the way, they're doing a pretty damn good job, in my opinion, because they've superseded so much of NASA's efforts. You know, the people like Jeff Bezos, the people who have the money like Elon Musk. So we're using chemical rockets right now to get payloads to space. And it used to be at one time, it was like $1,000 a pound to launch something up into space. And I think the numbers have changed. But anyway, here's something that goes back a long time And it was developed, this whole concept of a space elevator was developed by the father of Soviet rocketry. It was a man named Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. And he wrote back in 1895 this object. And the concept is to stretch a super tensile strength cable. (laughs) Maybe people will laugh. Made of a nanotube technology, this is what I'm saying. They didn't know about that then. 
from the equator to a fixed point in space beyond the geostationary point. So way up at 22,000 miles, you know, have we have these HBO satellites and all these different television satellites sitting up there at 22,000 miles. You would stretch this cable, and at the high end, the massive counterweight would keep the cable tight, and the cable would rotate with the Earth. I know people may think this is bizarre. And it would use centrifugal force to keep it useful. So climbers, obviously in spacesuits, or you could have a large module like a building go up this thing. And cargo would go up the cable to a designated distance in space. And then from there, you could then dock with another spacecraft or a space station. Now, the problematic thing is we don't really have, even if you took Kevlar cable, it's not strong enough. The tensile strength's not strong enough. If you took diamond thread, if there was even such a thing that you could fabricate cheaply. So there's this new technology called nanotube technology that could very well one day do this. But from science fiction, many people may remember from Star Wars, the city in the sky was called Bespin or Cloud City. And that was held up by gas. But this whole concept, Frank, is as strange as it may sound to people, could be a way to have us go up into the upper regions of space and do it. But the problematic thing, finally, is you've got to have that tensile strength cable. And, oh, boy, would that cable be really fat and big. As you get higher and higher, you need a much more uh, you know, wide-width diameter cable. But something that's on the drawing boards. There's actually engineers and companies that are even looking at this as a plausible idea. And it could be done probably cheaper and better on planetary systems that have less gravity than the Earth. Or in other words, even on an asteroid system, they could do this. Babby's an interconnect transportation system. 800-848-WABC. If you have questions for Steve Cates, we'll continue with your calls in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. She packed my bags last night. We fly. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite by then. I miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. It's lonely. This is the other side of midnight. That's Elton John singing Rocket Man. Not nearly as moving as the William Shatner rendition of this particular song, but it's still good. Still good. It has its own has its own style. Uh, talking about all things related to space with Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. Uh, you can follow his work and read the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. We're lucky enough. To have him on regularly on this show, he's also a regular contributor to the Cats Roundtable on Sunday morning whenever there's some big space news. Uh, Steve, uh, a lot of people eager to talk with you. No way we're going to get to everybody in the course of the next 10 minutes, but we're going to do the best that we can. Uh, let me say hello to Dave here in Manhattan. Hello, Dave. Good, good morning, gentlemen. Dr. Sky, a few years ago on a summer Friday night, I was aboard the Intrepid Sea Air Space Museum. I attended an amateur astronomer's event. I'm not an amateur astronomer. I looked through the telescope, which was attached to a very large monitor, 
and they showed me Saturn and its rings. Then they showed me I could see it with my naked eye. I'm interested in learning. If I'm standing on the sidewalk of New York City, what planets, what stars, what celestial bodies can I see with the naked eye, and what is the best time of year for such viewing? Great question, Dave, and here's the answer. Right now, if we look into our time machine here, as I mentioned before, in the early morning hours, you can get a glimpse if you have a clear view, unobstructed to the southeast, you'll see Venus, the most brilliant planet in the sky. What you'll also see, just a little bit to the lower right, and I'm talking about with a pair of binoculars, you still will be able to see the planet Mars. You can see Mars with the naked eye as it'll start to get higher in the sky. What's happening, Dave, is Jupiter is now moving into the sun, so you can't see it at all in the glare. But as we move out to the remainder of this year, into the 2022, both Saturn, as you mentioned before, a planet you'll be able to see with the naked eye come around summer, right around the middle part of the year, June and July. You'll see Jupiter. Those two objects are easy to see with the naked eye. You'll continue to see Mars by the end of the year. Dave, Mars will become bright once again, as bright as the International Space Station as we move toward December. And again, the locations in the sky, I'm sure that we'll be talking, what, Frank, in the future on the show mm. here about the exact times as we move and progress through the year. But, Dave, you can see a lot of planets, and I've done this even when I lived in the New York area. We used to do some telescopes and set them up in Central Park. You could still see some things in the sky other than the sun, you know, the moon, and some of the bright planets. Still pretty good, and even the space station, even from the brightly lit area of Manhattan. Thank you, Dave. 800-848-WABC. It's 800-848-9222. Jay is in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hello, Jay. Dr. Sky, my favorite program on WABC, Frank. Oh, thank you, Jay. Appreciate that. Thank sorry you. About, sorry about the Bengals. I was there for you, too. <laughs> That's it. People are still crying here. Grown men are crying their <laughs> eyes out. We're running out of tissues in the grocery stores. Now, Jay, are you the guy that was telling me about your family legacy, about your, your family was involved with something with uh, the Norden sites or something? Or you're a different Yes, day? I am. Jay, yes, yes, I am. You're the my day. grandfather. Worked yeah. for Sperry Gyroscope. Oh, there you go. I'm and, sorry, I remember. Yeah. Yes, and also he made the telescope down at the, is it the Hayden Planetarium. Yes, yes, there you and, go. Yeah, yes. Well, he was the guy who helped everybody grind their lenses, hand grind their lenses. That's amazing. Okay. Sperry found out about his hobby. He was a precision machinist, and he was making optical flats for the guidance systems of the early missile systems. Awesome. It was really high-tech stuff in its day. He was he was one of their golden employees. Wow. And uh, I still have this telescope to this day, a homemade telescope. Basically. Jay, I just want to get some other people in here. So what's your question? I want to try and get in as many folks as we can. Yes. What, what happened to the Sky and Telescope magazine? Well, you mean what happened? I mean, it's still there. Uh, you can still get it. Well, the problem is you can get it, but unfortunately, like when I try to search for it, even here in Arizona, very few, as not as many newsstands or or stores. I don't think there's newsstands anymore. They don't seem to care. But you'd have to call. You'd have to direct, check with them directly by going to skyandtelescope.com, and I'm sure you can get a subscription through them. Thank you, Jay. Sal is in Flushing. Sal is a uh, a big listener to uh, both of us, Steve. Well, good morning, Sal. Morning, Doctor Sky. Hey, Frank. A pleasure to find you to talk to you. Great program as always. Thank always you. good to hear you, Doctor Sky. Thank so you. I would like to ask. Yes, sir. I would like to ask, has the distance traveled by a star or a planet's gravitational pull ever been measured? Uh, for example, how far does the gravitational pull of Earth extend into space, and how is the distance determined? 
Also, do the Lagrange points play a part in determining the distance traveled by a planet or a star's gravitational wave? No, the, the Lagrange points are a fixed point because of the Earth's gravity. But the point that That's I true. see where the Earth's gravity would start to dissipate completely, we're probably looking, and it's not an exact answer here because I'd have to sit and do something as a calculation. I don't have that handy. But you're That's probably true. looking here, just as a fair and general answer, you're probably looking at about 20 to 25 diameters of the Earth, meaning as we go out past the moon, we would start to see a complete depletion, uh, depletion that is, of the Earth's gravity, but about 20 times the whole diameter of the Earth out into space. Ah, interesting. Yes, and, okay, and, and even some people would say that it's probably probably farther than that. But the answer is that you'd start to see it drop off pretty dramatically because the major big component in the solar system, there's two biggies, obviously, the solar gravity that's still out there. We have to factor that out because it's also part of the equation with the Earth and the Sun because we're all this planetary mm -hmm. system. And then don't forget there's another object out there that also has massive gravity, and it could upset those calculations, and that's the planet Jupiter. And we're kind of lucky that we mm -hmm. have Jupiter Sal, because Jupiter pulls in so many of the air and asteroids and comets that might hit the Earth, so we're lucky to have Jupiter. But the gravity would be about 20 times the diameter of the Earth in a general answer. Obviously, we could calculate that down and give you a real specific one if we were sitting together. Thank you, Sal. Uh, Steve, before we run out of time here, is there a rocket that's poised to hit the moon? Yes, this is interesting. Really quickly, this is the strange story that we have to report here. We thought, according to calculations by someone in the space industry who knows their stuff, they were saying that on March the 4th, something is going to hit the moon. It's a rocket body. They first thought it was a SpaceX rocket booster that was launched back in 2015. And now the gentleman who did this is kind of changing his mind and saying, no, it's the Chung-5M, uh, which is one of these little rockets that put down a soft lander on the surface of the moon, a Chinese space mission that was launched back in 2014. But now they're saying that it's not that. So I'm confused just to tell everybody that I'm not even sure what the heck's going to hit the moon. And we'll be investigating that and hopefully get you the answers as soon as they determine what the heck it is. It's not mm. the two objects that they thought. Mm. Very interesting. Uh, Russell is in Ohio. Hello, Russell. Hey, Frank. A long-time listener, uh, new caller. I just uh, wondered if uh, Dr. Sky is a ham radio operator. Well, welcome you aboard. You know what? I am not, but I surely would love to be because my next-door neighbor is so much involved in that, and uh, he's telling me every day that I should jump on my two-meter uh, thing and do, what is that, 144 megahertz? I'd love yeah, to do that yeah. and not put up with the nonsense that I sometimes hear on uh, CB radios. And uh, imagine that if you needed your radio, at least that's what, a little more uh, professional in the broadcast yeah, you, world. Is that... You'd be right in, uh, right in your element because uh, we got, uh, what, EME. We can bounce signals off the moon. And, uh, oh, awesome. We've got, we've got uh, like 25 different satellites around the world that we can uh, transmit on. And uh, I was just wondering, I'm right near where uh, John Glenn grew up in uh, New Concord, wow. Ohio. Well, that's beautiful. And I also understand that there's people out there, right, Russell, that actually talk to the International Space Station. Are they doing oh, it yeah. on two, two, two meters, I think? They're doing it up on two yeah. meters. Two meters up and uh, 440 megahertz down. And I've worked uh, Owen Garrett on the uh, very first uh, shuttle mission. Well, that's awesome, my friend. Now you inspire me because I need to get out there and do I, You don't have to do the Morse code, though, anymore, right, for a license? <laughs> no, no, it's a lot, e it's a lot easier now. 
Yeah, I'm glad because I don't think I was doing too good, Frank, with the Morse code. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Russell. 800-848-WABC. Nancy's in New Jersey. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Frank, and hello, Steve. Steve good I'd morning, like Nancy. Know, I'd like to know what it is you thought um, our visitor was that we had, what, 14, 15 months ago. And I believe the name of it was Oumuamua. Oh, yes. Here, a quick story on that. Oumuamua was discovered by a good friend of mine named Robert Werrick. He worked out in Hawaii at one of the observatories called the Haleaka Observatory. What he found was this amazing object that was probably, Nancy, the first interstellar, quote, asteroid. In other words, it didn't come from the solar system. It may have come from the star system Vega. Now, they discover it, Nancy, not when it's coming in toward the Earth, but they discover it as it's receding. And the problematic thing with this, according to Dr. Robert Werrick, is that the object, and Frank, this is fascinating, was actually accelerating as it was leaving the solar system. And it's now out past the orbit of Saturn, I believe. But here's interesting concepts. Dr. Abby Loeb of Harvard, who we talk to a lot. Who's been a guest on this show as well. Oh, a yeah, great guy. His, well, right. His theory on this was, or is, that it's probably some sort of a scout, because in Hawaiian, Oumuamua means scout, and that he believes that it could be, and I underline the word could, some sort of extraterrestrial scouting craft that goes out into the universe, we don't know. And then one theory that was disproven by astronomers, Nancy, is that they thought the acceleration was due to a hydrogen, frozen hydrogen that was actually melting and pushing the object into space. But you know what? I hope they send the spacecraft to catch up with that. Wouldn't that be amazing, Nancy, to find out what it really is? Because it's an amazing interloper, the first of the so-called other extrasolar uh, asteroid-type bodies. At least that's what we think right now. Steve, as it always does, whenever we're together, this hour has just flown by. I can't wait until we can speak again. I look forward to uh, your next appearance on the Cats Roundtable as well. Thank you. Have a good morning. Follow Dr. Sky's blog at uh, ktar.com. We'll be having him back soon. Uh, It's never soon enough for my taste. We'll get into some other subjects next hour and throughout the program. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, I've been very proud of the coverage that we have done on the Russia issue and the Russia question over the course of the last year and a half. And I'm very proud that um, we've had a lot of different people on, that I've said a lot of the different things that you really have not heard on any other radio station. And I really think we've, we've, that's one of our strengths is the Russia coverage. Now, the whole world is talking about the situation involving Russia and Ukraine. And it seems like, in my view anyway, that my take on the Russia question 
which is basically detente. I'm, I'm of the belief that we need peace with Russia and that it's essential. I think that viewpoint is more important to be heard now than ever. Now, that being said, I'm not about to make this whole show, not today, not tomorrow, not ever, all about what's happening in Eastern Europe. I will tell you, though, if you're interested in the tensions involving Russia, Ukraine, the Donbass region, NATO, how that relates to the United States, you are going to want to listen carefully at 4.30 because I am going to be joined by another one of my favorite guests. See, we have two very smart people on this show today. We have Steve Cates and we have George Beebe. George Beebe is a brilliant man. His book, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Catastrophe, is an essential primer in understanding what's going on with Russia uh, and where how that relates to the United States. So if you want to talk about Russia, wait until 4.30. Meantime, there's another country which is making some news. That nation is France. France has a presidential election Coming up in April, I love French politics. I pay pretty close attention to French politics. I pay. I like to try to pay attention to all international elections. I, I'm really intrigued by com, com, comparable and comparing different electoral systems. Uh, this uh, this country uses that. This country uses this. I'm always curious how that works out for the actual people that live in that country. France is electorally. But they have their election coming up in April. Macron is running for re-election. And there's some other candidates that are running. One of the candidates that has not yet been doing very well in the polls is Fabian Roussel. Fabian Roussel is, I believe, a communist polling at about 4% among voters. Now, the way France works for the presidential election is... If uh, any candidate gets 50 percent, then that candidate wins without a runoff. And um, de Gaulle, for instance, won without a runoff. He got a majority of the vote. But more often than not, nobody gets 50 percent because there are so many candidates that run. And the top two vote getters then face off in a runoff. It's somewhat similar to the system that we have in uh, Louisiana. Somewhat similar. Not not a perfect comparison, but it's somewhat similar. So. This fella, Fabian Roussel, has said something very, very interesting. He said the following. Well, what do you think? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Now, all right, maybe you're not up on your French. What he said was he was talking to a large crowd, and he was addressing primarily students, younger people. And he was calling for a ban on homework. Homework. He said, quote, 
according to a translation, I actually don't speak French. I know that may come as a shock to you. But uh, this is a translation provided by Business Insider. You will be free. You'll be able to play sports. You'll be able to go to the theater. You can go see your friends. You can see your parents. Fabian Roussel, this French communist presidential candidate, is proposing essentially banning homework in the nation of France. Um, look, I know this might strike some people as unusual, but this movement to ban homework is gaining all sorts of momentum all around France. The education minister, Jean-Michel Blanquer, has also called for homework to stay on school grounds. And again, lest anyone think this is a communist thing, it's not. Um, The education minister is not a communist and he's not part of a communist government. So this is a movement that's growing. And they are saying that since he made these comments, he's really starting to catch fire in French politics because all the young people are trying to get their parents to vote for Fabian Roussel. Now, I don't think it's going to be enough to propel him to the runoff because uh, you have a lot of other interesting candidates that are running. And as we get closer to the um, as we get closer to the election, we'll profile some of the candidates because it's it's uh, like I said, I just love French politics. It's so interesting to watch. But you have a situation where these calls to ban homework are growing louder and louder, not just abroad, but in the United States. In 2017, a Florida superintendent banned homework for elementary schools in the entire district, with one very important exception, reading at home. The United States is not the only place to do this. Last August, the Philippines proposed a bill to ban homework completely. They cited the need for rest, relaxation, and time with family. Another bill there proposed no weekend homework, with teachers running the risk of fines or, are you ready for this, two years in prison if they gave children homework on the weekends. So um, in Utah, this was last year, in Utah, Two elementary schools gained national recognition for officially banning homework. My question for you is, is it time to ban homework? 800-848-WABC. Whether we're talking in France, the United States, the Philippines, Spain, Utah, Florida, Calls are growing from parents, from educators, from students to ban homework. 800-848-9222. Is it time? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. More and more experts are saying that the benefits of homework, such as they are, are being outweighed by the uh, drawbacks, but the pros are being outweighed by the cons. They're saying this could be an opportunity to refocus on mental health and educate the whole child. 
So prioritizing mental health seems to be at the forefront of the homework ban movement. Leaders say they want to give students time to develop other hobbies, relationships, and balance their lives. I have to tell you, I am all for this. I, uh, I, as a student, I didn't get very good grades, even though I was, I was pretty bright. But the reason I didn't get good grades is because of homework. I absolutely hated homework. I hated doing it. I hated the idea of it. And you know what I would do? I'm not proud of this, but this is the truth. By the time I got to high school, I had tried doing all the homework assigned to me a couple of times, and uh, and I did. It took me hours, hours, and I thought to myself, "What a waste of time!" So what I would do is, I would I was um, my parents were divorced. I would go to my dad's after school, and I would say that I would my stepmother would be home, and uh, she was always willing to help with homework. She's also very smart, smart, but. What I would do is I would go up to my room and say that I was doing homework. Instead, I would nap. I would I would sleep during during the allotted homework time and I would do almost no homework. Or if I wouldn't sleep, maybe I would read a book of my choosing or talk on the phone. I never did homework. And so what would what would what would happen is one of two things. Either I would um suffer academically, grade-wise, or if, if it was a class that allowed me to turn in late homeworks, I would, um, at the, ver- the very last week of the semester, feverishly try to turn in all of the late homeworks that I hadn't yet done. And it was an incredible, uh, stressful thing for me. It was something that I found to be a waste of time, And I found my time as a young person, particularly in high school, but even prior to that, I found my time better spent doing almost anything else. So um, they're saying, and this French French communist presidential candidate is saying that homework is not only bad for everybody, but it's particularly harmful for students who um, are at the lower end of the socioeconomic stratosphere because uh, they're saying that um, this would uh, allow children that may not have parents that are home the opportunity to help them. Whereas if you're, uh, you can afford to have a parent or two home with you, they're in a position to help you with that. Now, since 2017, the French have actually banned homework for adults. The French have enjoyed legal protections from answering work emails outside of office hours. So traction has grown among pockets of the left and the right for similar legislation for children. Uh, The former French president, Francois Hollande, took a stab at banning homework for elementary and middle school students at the beginning of his tenure. And it didn't pan out. But the issue has not faded away. What do you think? Is it time to ban homework? 1-800-848-WABC. My answer is a resounding yes. Now, I realize that it's not a perfect answer, right? Because I I do homework, right? My wife will tell you, the, the time that I'm home, I'm almost, I'm, 
almost all of the time that I'm home is spent doing work for this show. Almost all of it. So are are we shortchanging our children when they're when they're going to be in a lifestyle or in a career where they could end up with a profession where they're doing a lot of homework at home? Maybe, maybe I will freely admit the flaw in that argument. But I really think children these days are stressed to the max. We see this in opinion survey after opinion survey. We see this when it comes to anxiety. We see this when it comes to drug use. We see this when it comes to suicide, unfortunately. And I really don't see the pressure of homework being much of a benefit to them. And a lot of the homework that I remember, and I don't think it's significantly different now, a lot of the homework that I remember was busy work. It was not... um, it was not work that encouraged greater thinking. It was not work that in, that encouraged creativity. It was not work, for the most part, that encouraged resource, you know, uh, research skills. It was, uh, I mean, it was busy work from what I remember, most of it. I'm sure some of it was helpful. Tell me what you think. Is it time to ban homework? 800-848-9222. That's one 800 848 W-A-B-C. Let me say hello to George in New Jersey. Hello, George. Hi, Frank. I just wanted to first uh, tell you, last night was an excellent interview with that gentleman from that country. Nobody else had that interview. Nobody's even thinking about that interview. And I'm just going to slip something in real fast. I think what's going to happen is they want, maybe they're going to want Mr. Donald to talk to our friend in Russia, because they're buddies. So, and also, I agree with you 100%. Get rid of homework. Study and talk inside the classroom like we're doing right now. Uh, uh, and, and you'll get more and, accomplished. And, George, thanks for your nice words, even though you violated my request that we hold off on Russia commentary until 4.30. But um, I was actually surprised that my interview with Russell Bentley didn't make more news. Even here at the radio station, I was surprised... More of the uh, newscasts didn't pick up on it, and some of the shows didn't play that audio because I, I thought that was a pretty interesting thing. But it goes to show you there's when what you hear on this show is totally unique. You're not going to get this kind of content anywhere else. But um, 800-848-WABC, I'll comment on the Russia aspect of what he said a little bit later. Is it time to ban homework? Yes, no, maybe. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Eddie is in New Jersey. Hello, Eddie. Hi, good morning, Frank. Howdy. Uh, first of all, I, I tuned I tuned into the radio at about uh, twelve fifty, and I heard you on filling in for Dominic. I was really disappointed that uh, that I didn't know about this earlier, so I went back and I already listened to the whole. Sh- so <laughs> I got that, uh, but I don't think that homework should be bad uh, because I think that the goal of homework is not so much that the kids should do work. Uh, uh, after school, but that they should, uh, their parents should see what, 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 uh, how their kids are doing in school and, you know, sort of to connect with their parents on, on their academics. Well, I certainly agree with that, uh, that, uh, that that's a good thing for parents to do and the kind of thing I'd like to do with my child. But then let's say you have a, you, two different households, right? 
uh, both go to the same school, both their kids are in the same class, both third graders, let's say, and you have one child that has very active parents that are interested in in checking his homework, knowing what he's doing, and you have other parents, and unfortunately this is very common, that are totally neglectful and totally absent and have no interest in uh, in looking at his homework or looking at the work that he's doing. In that case, in the case of the latter child that I just described, how is homework beneficial for that person? So that that kid, unfortunately, won't have all the benefits of homework. But even I'm saying an abuse of the system does not mean that the system is a bad system. And it's, it's, given, it's giving an opportunity and an encouragement for the parents to get involved. I, I think that even though there are parents now who aren't getting involved in their kids' school, but there would certainly be less if there was no homework. Now, I, I'm 19 years old, so I certainly uh, am pretty close to the days when I was doing homework, and I, I despised it. And I still do despise it, but I, I, I think that I, I see the, the, the good in it. Well, Eddie, thank you. I appreciate your perspective, and I see the good in it, too. And I appreciate you listening, especially as a young person, bringing our demos uh, d- you know, down into the younger age groups. And as far as um, not telling people that I was filling in for Dominic, I didn't know about it. I would have mentioned it yesterday. I didn't know about it until a few hours before the show. And I did. You know, our owner, John Katsimatidis, was kind enough program on the Cats at Night show. And I mentioned that I was going to be filling in for Dominic. So, look, you know, I promoted it on social media, on both Twitter and Facebook. And I hope you'll follow me on both platforms, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan and uh, on Twitter at Frank Morano. And I went on the radio with John and I and I mentioned that I was going to be on. So beyond that, I'm not really sure what I could be doing to inform people. I mean, I guess I do have an email list. I guess I could have sent out an email blast. But I'm I try not to overwhelm people with email because whenever I send out an email blast, no matter um, how relevant the subject matter is, a couple of people always unsubscribe. So I I try not to in you know inculcate people with email. I try to wait. Usually I wait until there's three or four items that I want to promote, right? Usually it's one upcoming radio item, one podcast, one charity endeavor, one political endeavor, one live event. And usually once I have all four or five, I'll send out an email blast promoting them all. So this way you don't get five emails from me every day because I end up on on some email list where I get four or five, six emails from people and I end up unsubscribing. It just fills up my email box. So I'm trying to be cognizant of that. If you want to be added to my email list, by the way, you can just email me frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And I will, um, I will add you to my email list you know, just say, hey, add me to your list or whatever else you want to say. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, Frank. How's it going? Um, on the homework thing, I think you're right. Maybe they should first drastically cut it and maybe or may, maybe give them one problem or something like that for the central lesson. You know, because it is, it is they have, they're going through a lot. Like my my best friend's, uh, my friend's kid at work during the lockdowns, you know, when they were learning remotely. I mean, she was like five, four or five preschool or whatever they were still teaching them but like she she just needed she was frustrated still a kid like she needed somebody to really show her hands on how to do it you know so i well, mean i think you're probably right thanks. i mean you know, i could i one more thing i could i could see i could see someone on the radical left saying the same thing but for the wrong reasons you know what i mean but um it, it's a lot right now and with, with covid not not even to mention covid 
You right. Know? Right. Exactly. Thank you, Eric. And it's funny. This has been proposed in New York City as well. I think Peter Vallone Jr., who's now a, a judge, I believe he's a state Supreme Court justice in Queens, when he was in the city council, he proposed, I don't know if it was a ban on homework. I have to ask him about it or just I'll research it. Maybe I'll, I'll invite him on the show because it's been a while since he's been on. Uh, but um, Judge Vallone, when he was in the, when he was councilman Vallone, he proposed, I believe it was a cap on homework, something like no more than uh, I forget what it was, a half hour a day or 90 minutes a day. I'd be willing to meet him halfway. I'd be willing to go uh, towards a ban. But I will tell you, the research supports a ban, at least for elementary schools. The supporters of a homework ban in this country, uh, they often cite the work of John Hattie, who concluded that elementary school homework has no effect on academic progress whatsoever, none. In a podcast, he said that uh, homework in primary school has an effect of around zero. In high school, it's larger, which is why we need to get it right, not why we need to get rid of it. It's one of these lower-hanging fruit that we should be looking in our primary schools to say, is it really making a difference? In the upper grades, according to this researcher, John Hattie, Hattie's research shows that homework has to be purposeful, not busy work. See, that was always my issue, is that I always felt that it was not purposeful. I found that it was busy work. And the reality is most teachers don't receive training on how to assign homework that's meaningful and relevant to students. So you're getting pushback from parents, teachers, and children. So in October, there was a Washington Post article that made all sorts of waves in parenting when it introduced the idea that even if homework is assigned, it doesn't have to be completed for the student to pass the class. Boy, would I have loved that. You know how much higher my grades would have been if I didn't have to pass, uh, if I didn't have homework being a component of my grade? Can you imagine? All right, tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. Homework does have its defenders, especially in the upper grades, including from some very reputable people as well. Uh, one of them happens to be Gino. Hello, Gino. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm an across-the-board defender, but there's a lot of trends that have been happening lately. For instance, in the last 10 years, high school kids have gotten demonstrably less homework to take. They don't even come home with books any longer, if you see. They're too busy beating each other with the backpacks to notice. You can see that they don't have any books in them any longer. But that's a side point. That, you know, we've spent two years eliminating homework from from children, and it's had a horrible outcome. Everybody's starting to realize this now, including de Blasio, who instituted it all, right? They realized the folly of that choice of not doing it. Well, of, of, um, of remote learning, you mean? Remote learning, encouraging remote learning, uh, leaving children unattended, uh, the, relying on unqualified parents to be professional teachers, which we know they are not now. All this is starting to you know, tease out in, in the stats. And furthermore, we have a whole generation of college-educated people that Google their way into degrees. Well, that's true. We don't even have the, that's right, true. We don't have the discipline of, 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 of you know, learning on your own any longer. That's out the window due to technology. Uh, you know, we I'm, need to have a workaround. Right. We need a workaround to make people uh, function and, and do some you know, independent thought on their own and analysis. Uh, that's fair, Gino. Look, I've been accused of Googling my way through entire radio shows from time to time. So I don't want to make, uh, as tempting as it is to make Google the villain, I, I, <laughs> I, make, uh, I make pretty pro prolific use of Google, believe me. Hey, uh, let me take a quick break here. We'll continue with your calls. We have uh, one, two, three, 
for five open lines. And it was an interesting idea proposed by a Supreme Court justice that uh, I generally find myself disagreeing with, but I found myself agreeing with her. I'm going to tell you about it. A lot of other stuff to get to. And I know what you're saying. You know, I think um, I I keep uh, remembering the name of that film. We need to talk about Kevin, which, you know, for for whatever its benefits as a film, it's got a wonderful title. And I don't know that I ever ended up seeing it. There's now a documentary with that name called We Need to Talk About Cosby, about Bill Cosby. I have to see that as well. But it's a great name. I know we need to talk about Russia, and we will at 430. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Rebel just for kicks. This is Dunyats, right? Is it, who is this? This is Portugal the Man. That's right. Feel it still. Uh, it's good, good stuff. I'm a big, big, big fan of this song. It's uh, very, very catchy. Um, feel it still. Portugal the Man. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, uh, we do list the bumper music at uh, Moreno Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. Just uh, search Moreno Radio Fans and Haters. It it is interesting. This song, um, it interpolates the Marvelettes, uh, Please Mr. Postman. And it's it's really just really cleverly done. It's really, I don't know what you would call this. I don't know what genre this is. I I don't know if it's quantifiable as a genre, but uh, it's great. It's great. It's very... uh, Great. All right. Um, I'm going to continue with your calls on the homework question in just a minute. So far, based on everybody that's on hold and everybody that's called so far, I am in the minority. So far, I think the only person that has agreed with me is Eric and the academic research on this subject. So it's Eric, the academic research, and me versus the world. Nobody I'd rather be teamed with, Eric, if I'm remembering his name correctly. Hey, um... This is a story that I've had on my list for uh, a while. You know what? I'll tell you about it in a minute. I will, we'll take your calls on the homework situation first because a lot of you are very, very eager to uh, to comment on this. Martha in Brooklyn is a retired teacher. Hello, Martha. Hello, Frank. Frank, you know, I agree with you from the perspective that there has to be a purpose in the homework. I taught 7th, 8th, and ninth grade for many years American history and the kids liked something called a work in progress. So let's say the topic was broad turning points in history. They would work on it for a long period of time. The latter part of my career, it swung over to not just reading and answering questions when we were children. It's more as what you said, 
a work in progress and they select something with a purpose based on the certain period of history that we're studying. So I agree with you. Thank you, Martha. All right. Larry in Brooklyn. Hello. Yeah, hi, Frank. Yeah, I agree with a, a lot with the last caller said. Homework should somewhat be made to be a little bit more interesting. But you're not going to get around the fact that homework is, is an integral part of progressing in the curriculum. I mean, I remember when I was in junior high school, we went ahead in science by reading another t- uh, 10, 20 pages ahead, and then he would cover it in class. I mean, if you want to, if you don't, if you want to limit, homework is part of the progress of the classroom. And if you, if you eliminate that, you halt the progress. And there's another very important reason also, because homework gives kids a sense of responsibility. Do you know how many mm. kids are going to be waiting for the bell to ring so they can go into the other universe and they're going to lose both the, going to lose both the homework and the presence in class because of that. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. They're both good points, Larry. Look, I, I'd feel better about the whole thing, uh, to your point and Martha's, if the homework served a purpose. But um, again, from what I'm seeing and from what my friends that are parents of school-age children tell me, is that it doesn't serve a purpose, that a lot of the times it's just busy work. Now, every, I, I like the Philippines approach, that maybe you allow reading as homework assignments, and then uh, when you're in class, you can sort of gauge whether or not someone has done the relevant uh, reading discussion. But uh, I think the way homework is now, I agree with everybody that wants to either limit it or ban it. Uh, I don't think it's making our children any smarter you know, you talk about, Larry, that uh, the homework instills a sense of responsibility. Well, have you seen the people that are entering adulthood these days? Do you feel that they have a sense of responsibility? I'm not talking about the ones that listen to this show like Eddie. But I, by and large, I find the people that are coming out of school now, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, are the least prepared generation that I've ever seen. So what good did homework do them? I'm not seeing it. And so far, the research doesn't support it, at least not for elementary school. Patricia is in Staten Island. Hello, Patricia. Hi, how are you? Um, I wanted to say I think it should be limited because I think sometimes they get way too much and they get burned out. And who starts to do it? We start Mm -hmm. to do it as the Mm -hmm. parents. I mean, and so I think that some children do need some clarity in some subjects. And when they go home, if they have a mother at home, she can work with them and see things more clear. I remember in the in the summer, I used to put on a timer and make them do only like 15 or 20 minutes a day of work just to keep them up with it. But I feel like, and for the parents who don't do it, you know, then they're not really getting involved. Unfortunately, there are a lot of children. It's one parent, and it goes by the wayside. They just don't put enough effort into it. But I don't see any, and making it interesting, that's a big thing. And you only need one good teacher to make, like, I remember when we were doing Shakespeare, I was like, oh, my God, I don't want to do this. But the teacher made it so interesting. Mm. It was great. I, I agree so with I you. Think- Look, I, I'm a big defender of teachers, and I think a good teacher can make all the difference in terms of a young person's love of learning. I, 
I tell you, I had a teacher real quick that saved my life. I was going to quit school. I was like, it's not for me. I was failing everything. And one day she said to me, I had an introduction into nursing. And she saw my report card, which I was so embarrassed. And she said to me, come up here a minute. She said, what's going on? I said, you know what? I think I'm going to quit school. And she said, you have this introduction into nursing where you're getting a 90. She said, would you like to become a nurse in the nursing course? I said, I better do something. I said, because she said, could you read? I said, definitely I could read. I got in that course and that was my forte. I worked in as a nurse for, oh my God, 40 years. And I loved every day of it. So a teacher That's wonderful. changed me. That's great. Yeah. That's great to hear, Patricia. Thank you for sharing that. And look, I want to make very clear, I'm very pro-education, very pro-schooling. I could go and I would be okay with a longer school day. I'd be okay with, um, you know, extending the, the months of the school year, the calendar, the school calendar. I'd be okay with a lot of that. I am not seeing homework serve any conducive purpose in most cases. 800-848-WABC. It's interesting what Patricia said there about uh, a teacher saving her life. Teacher saved my life as well. It was I was in high school. I think I was a senior. And uh, I was attending Tottenville High School. Tottenville never ran, never will. And uh, I got into a dispute with uh, a teacher that I had. And, um, you know, it was actually right after school and the teacher had uh, and actually the dispute turned physical and uh, we started we got into a shoving match, started shoving one another. And the teacher actually stabbed me. He would carry a two inch pocket knife and he stabbed me with that two inch pocket knife. And, um, you know, he saved my life because had he carried a five inch pocket knife, I'd be dead. No, I'm, he was not actually stabbed. That's not true. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. a big fan of uh, Carrie Underwood. She um, saw her perform at the Hard Rock, one of the first concerts at the Hard Rock in Atlantic City at the Edis Arena when it had reopened. And uh, she said she put on a great show. She went with my friend Brian Silverstein's wife. And uh, Brian and I, I think, went for drinks and to play blackjack. So it was win-win for everybody, uh, except for me, who I think lost when it came to blackjack. Hey, so we are rapidly, it's hard to believe, but we are just uh, five days away from the end of the month of February. You know what that means? Is that means we are going to see President Biden, if he sticks to the timetable that he laid out, we are going to see President Biden nominate a Supreme Court justice. He is pledged to do it by the end of this month, which means within the next five days. 
And one hope that I have is that he makes a pick that is in that adds to the diversity of the Supreme Court. Now, what I mean by diversity, it's not what Joe Biden means. I'm not looking for more black people or more women or more Hispanics or some gays or some transgenders or, you know, whatever. I'm not talking about identity politics at all. I'm talking about real diversity. And uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, back in October, she actually said some things on this subject that I really agreed with. This is what she said. If we're talking about what I saw as greatly missing on our court then and still now, the answer is yes. We're still missing professional diversity. Uh, When uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed, we lost our only civil rights lawyer. There are no civil rights lawyers left on the court. Some of my colleagues might dispute that because they feel that some of the work they've done on behalf of the government might include civil rights work. But we have no real lawyer who's been in the trenches on civil rights issues, whether it's on women's rights or uh, racial rights or even disability rights on any level of civil rights. We have nobody on our bench who has done criminal defense work outside of perhaps some white collar work. Um, We don't have anyone who's done immigration work. We don't have anyone who's done environmental work. Um, There are so many areas of law that the court touches and whose decisions impact in such tremendous ways that I do worry that the authorities who are selecting judges are not paying enough attention to that kind of diversity as well. I have to tell you, and I've had this on my list of things to talk about since October, but uh, since we're coming along the deadline here of the of the, the president's uh, deadline for naming a pick, I w- wanted to make sure that we talk about this today. I agree with almost everything Justice Sotomayor said there. These are nine people who have veto power, essentially. I know they claim that they don't, but they have veto power over all of our democratically elected officials. And yet... They all have come, whether they're left wing or right wing, from the same professional well. Um, Justice Sotomayor did a great job there laying out the areas of legal practitioner that the courts make rulings on and where their case law affects generations of legal precedent. But none of the people making these decisions have any actual experience. And I could go further than what she said. She talks about how there's no criminal defense attorneys, that, which, again, I think is a great point. There's no prosecutors on there. No prosecutors. There's no, never been, there's no one on the court currently who's ever held elective office. They don't know what it's like to ask someone for their vote. There's no one on the court that's a, that was a state judge. There's no one on the court who, I mean, it, it, you have nine people. Uh, well, let's not count um, the vacancy. Let's assume it's still Breyer, right? If if we're still counting Breyer as being on there. You have nine people, eight of whom all had the exact same job before they were on the court. 
and all nine of whom were Supreme Court clerks themselves. You have um, a situation where eight of the nine all went to the same two schools. Now, again, I have nothing against Harvard or Yale, but there's some other great law schools in the country, and I have to think that when you take every member of the court from the same job and from the same two schools, it adds to a level of groupthink, and it subtracts from real diversity. And I was glad Justice Sotomayor said that. Now, we're also hearing calls from other lawmakers, Democrat and Republican, that want someone from outside of the Ivy League. Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican. Congressman Jim Clyburn, a Democrat. They have urged the president to pick someone that did not go to an Ivy League school. Um, Again, Biden has pledged to make history by nominating the first black woman to the court. I would, you know, Clyburn, who is the highest ranking black member of Congress, says that Biden should be concerned about the court's lack of educational diversity, too. Absolutely. Clyburn, we run the risk of creating an elite society. Well, I don't think we're running the risk of creating it. I think we have an elite society. Because all of these Supreme Court justices come from the same well. Clyburn, we've got to recognize that people come from all walks of life, and we ought not dismiss anyone because of that. Lindsey Graham, who's on the Judiciary Committee, he said on Face the Nation that he'd like to see the court have a little more balance, some common sense on it. Everyone doesn't have to be from Harvard and Yale. It's okay to go to a public university and get your law degree. I am very pleased at what I'm hearing from Graham, from Clyburn, and from Sotomayor. There are a lot of great legal jobs out there, and yet none of them are represented on the Supreme Court. Really, most of these, with the exception of uh, Elena Kagan, most of these are people that have never even uh, tried cases. So I really do hope... That President Biden, look, we know the kind of person he's going to pick. And and when I say the kind of person, I'm not talking about a black woman. I'm talking about we know he's going to pick someone who has a a left-wing interpretation of the Constitution and various other things. It's fine. You know that that's who he's going to pick. That's why he was elected in part. Trump, same thing on the right. You know that's why he was elected in part. Um, I would love to see, and I was glad that Trump picked Amy Coney Barrett, in, and, and in doing so, he picked the only member of the court that's not from the Ivy League. And I'm glad to hear that the call for real diversity, and that's something that I think is so much more important, quite frankly, than gender or ethnic diversity. Comment as you see fit. 800-848-WABC. That is 800-848-WABC. Uh, and I know a lot of you want to comment on homework. We'll get to you there as well. Uh, Randall is calling from Maine. Hello, Randall. Frank, would you consider, hello, would you consider being on the Supreme Court? I would, actually. Well, I suggest he nominate you. I, I, you know, in, in, spite of, um, in spite of the way that my hair looks, and uh, I, I don't think I would, I would pass as being African-American. 
Well, I think you look adorable. It's good to talk oh. to you. Hey, well, thank you. Um, on the on the homework issue, I agree with you that we should not do homework for um, kids. But um, additionally, um, what I would do is I would follow the Spanish method and let kids sleep in and let adults sleep in and start work at like 10 and go until like four in the afternoon rather than have kids wake up early. That's always been a problem with me, having having kids forced to wake up like at 5.30 in the morning or 6 in the morning when they don't get enough sleep. If they are able to sleep in, then I think they, they'll function better. Well, I agree with that. I don't know that I'd go as late as 10 a.m., but you're right. Uh, these uh, getting children to school and having them uh, be in class by 7.30 in the morning, it's something that I don't believe is conducive to learning, uh, Randall. Uh, certainly not. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Quick update on uh, – hey, you know, so I have – I give the mailing address out frequently. And if you ever want to send me good old-fashioned snail mail, you can um, – you, you know, you can do so at P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York. I just sent it to my attention – uh, Frank Morano, P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. So yesterday I looked through, I was told, and look, I see the mail pile up near the receptionist. I check every day for my mail because I'm told that's where it's sent. So I look and I share a mailbox with Larry Kudlow. And so Larry's mail is in there, largely untouched. And I didn't see anything in there for me the last couple of weeks. So... I send an email because people have been telling me they've been sending things. I send an email uh, to our uh, program director, Matt Meany, who does a great job. Yesterday after the show, I said, uh, hey, you know, has anybody been picking up the mail at our P.O. box? Because folks are saying they're sending me things and I haven't been getting it, which is true. And then Matt responds to that email by saying, I just put a whole bunch of mail in Studio B for you. I walk into Studio B, and it's like that scene in It's a Wonderful Life where there's mail upon mail upon mail upon mail. There's more mail than I think I could read in two lifetimes. Now, So I don't think that they sent someone to go pick it up. I think that mail has been being stockpiled somewhere else. So my question is, why are they telling me that the mail is over by the reception area when clearly there's some sort of secret mail repository that I have not yet been privy to. So, I I mean, I was glad to get it. I mean, it's going to take me a while to go through this today. But if you're somebody that has sent me mail, chances are I will get to that today. And if it's mail that uh, that's worthy of reading, I will do so on on Tuesday. So stay tuned for that. 800-848-9222. Jason is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jason. Oh, hey. How are you? You know they're stealing your mail. They're piling it somewhere. Right, right. Why are they doing that? Maybe they're scared of your intelligence. Uh, th- uh, we know that's not the case. We know uh, that is absolutely. I, I can promise you the right, one that thing. Was a little fluff there. Yeah, the but, one, the, the one thing uh, that everybody who works here has in common is no one is scared of my intelligence. Uh, so, for the justices, like, what, what do you think is? the real thing going on there do you think that uh we have any chance of making a real difference now i feel like it's being all slanted towards you know what's going on right now well when you say what's going on right now i'm not sure i uh i'm not sure i follow what, what do you mean 
well, you know, I feel like everything's being slanted towards the Democratic vote. And I, I mean, everything, I mean, it was so embarrassing. Everything today, like from Biden to two hours late to come out to, to make an appearance to Harris with like a German intellectual today asking her yesterday, asking her for questions. And she was like, um, well, you know, um, Maybe we should just all get along. Yeah. All right. Well, again, I, 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 you know, look, when you have um, Democrats elected, they're not going to implement Republican policy by and large. So I, I and I think your characterization of everything being slanted towards the left, it also doesn't um, explain why so many Republican Supreme Court justice appointees have been have come from the same well which is the Federal Court of Appeals and Harvard and Yale. So I don't think this is a Democrat or a Republican problem. I think this is an elitist problem. We have a legal elitism problem on the courts. And I think that whether we're talking uh, Democratic or Republican appointees, that it would help as they consider a wide variety of cases to have a diversity of experience. And I agree with Sotomayor. Lindsey Graham and Jim Clyburn on that front. 800-848-9222. Um, Tommy is in Jamaica, Queens. Hello, Tommy. Hey, what's up, Frank? Frank, there's only one job the Supreme Court justices have, and that's to interpret the Constitution. Don't make laws, nothing else, but interpret what the Constitution says. Not to make stuff up. It's not a living document. It's written down. That's it. Plain and simple. It's- is that the totality of your comment? Hello? Yeah. Hello? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but if you read the, the the Constitution, right, and if you read the um, the section that deals with the Supreme Court, it doesn't mention anything about what you just said of interpreting the Constitution. It doesn't, doesn't say all, that at all. all they're supposed to do. No, but that's if you it. read Article 2, Section 2, it doesn't say that at all. So what are they supposed to do? Making up this, what, how they feel, and how they, and it's it's not how you feel. It's what the law. Is. Right, but it, there's nothing in there about feelings either, like, Tommy. Like Roberts, Roberts threw Obama a lifeline with Obamacare and made up the law. You know, oh, it's it's a, it's it's not a tax. Yeah, no. and again, yeah. I would encourage you to read Article Three, Section One. Uh, I think I just said it was Article Two. It's Article Three, Section One, and Article Three, Section Two. Because one of the poor assumptions that we've made in this country, and it started with Marbury versus Madison, and it's gotten exponentially worse uh, since the Dred Scott decision, and especially over the last hundred years, is we assume that because the Supreme Court nullifies laws, that that's what they're supposed to do. There is nothing in the Constitution that gives the Supreme Court the power to say that a law passed by a democratically elected Congress and signed by a democratically elected president, that they have the right to nullify. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that, if you read Article 3. Now, that's a separate discussion. We can get into that, and we will, when we do our uh, Judicial Supremacy Day. But I'm simply talking about a diversity of experience. We have diversity of gender. We have diversity of ethnicity. Right now, there's no professional or educational diversity. 800-848-9222. Audrey is in Brooklyn. Hello. Good morning. It's great to hear you this morning. Thank um, you. Uh, um, a comment, your last caller. You should also check out the Department of Justice. They all don't have 
put in what he was talking about, not the not the um, Supreme Court. But I I think I I came a little late in regards to the school. There was a something about graduation. But anyway, I just wanted to say my nephew graduated after um, the COVID or whatever, and it's it's not the, the homework. It's just it's so much of a distortion of what you can teach, what you can't teach, and I don't want I don't want you to have a computer, and I don't want you to talk about this. As long as we don't talk about the realism, <laughs> the kids are going to come out not not all of them um, sort of misguided, misinformed, misinformed, too. And I oh. have to do my homework. All right, thank you, Audrey. Uh, I don't know that that is I don't know that that is relevant to the homework debate itself, but I appreciate the perspective nonetheless. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to comment on any of this. I will say, you know, I'm going to use the next 77 seconds of news that is going to be done by, I think, Frank Diaz uh, to refill my Theodore Roosevelt coffee cup. And if you read what Theodore Roosevelt said in 1912 when he ran for president with the Progressive Party on the subject of the Supreme Court, he said some interesting things. I was limiting myself to one cup of coffee a week. Now I think I'm doing three or four cups a day. And I got to tell you, I don't know if this is the best thing for me health-wise, but I am just loving it. I am absolutely loving it. I am thinking, how did I go without coffee for so long? I was doing one cup a week. Now I'm almost at one cup an hour. Great stuff. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Have your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, those of you that are holding, I will get to you. Do you have a smartphone? I'm guessing if you're younger than, I don't know, 40, you definitely have a smartphone. Although maybe not, because there is a fascinating story that shows more and more people are deciding to ditch their smartphone. In a world where many people are, many, including me, a world where many of us are glued to our smartphone, we are seeing more and more 30-somethings and 20-somethings ditch theirs. An interesting article, I'm going to link to this on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash fan. By the way, if you do have a smartphone, you should absolutely make sure you download the 77 WABC app because it is a terrific app. Now, it's free, by the way. This article from the BBC chronicles, and this is an international phenomenon, it chronicles uh, people, primarily in England, but elsewhere as well, who are making the decision to ditch their smartphone and use the time that they're gaining from ditching their phone to do other things. Uh, it chronicles one woman, Miss Cowling, 36 years old, who's using the time that she's gaining from ditching her smartphone to read and sleep more. She's quoted in the article as saying, 
I thought about how much of my life is spent looking at the phone and what else could I do? Being constantly connected to lots of services creates a lot of distractions and it's a lot for the brain to process. She said she plans to use the time gained from quitting her smartphone to read and sleep more. About 9 out of 10 people in the U.K. own a smartphone, and I think that's replicated in much of the industrialized world. And look, we are glued to them. I try on the weekend, on on Saturday especially, to not have it glued to my hand, to leave it in a corner somewhere and not have it. But I'll be honest, what do I leave it alone for an hour, two hours, three hours? It is interesting. My my sister-in-law is, uh, my sister-in-law, Deborah is an observant Jew, and she observes the Sabbath on Saturdays. And she's been over our house on Saturday after the sun sets. And once the sun sets, first of all, she's without the smartphone for the whole day. And I think it's... Um, I think it could be very healthy, actually. And she's without the smartphone the whole day. And then once she gets that smartphone back, it's like she's been, you know, denied water for eight hours. She spends she spends the next, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour catching up on emails, on text messages, on, on everything. And that's how, you know, I've toyed with the idea of maybe taking one day a week where I don't pick up my phone, where I don't pick up my smartphone. It's very tempting. But then I think, all right, what, what day do I pick? I can't pick Sunday because I, um, I have to prepare for the Monday show. And then I think, all right, well, I can't pick Friday because I don't even leave here until Friday. And then uh, there are people that want to make plans for the weekend, and I've got to use social media and so forth. To uh, you know, to make uh, you know, to make posts, social media posts about what we've done on the show, link to the podcasts and everything. And I said, "All right, let me try Saturday." And Saturday is the day that I use the phone and hold the phone the least. And uh, and I do try, and I think with some success that if I'm ever out to lunch or dinner with someone, or if I'm at someone's house, I don't look at the phone. And and these days, that's a rarity. You go out to dinner with someone, they're looking at that phone while they're talking to you. Uh, But it was interesting with that woman in that article. And again, you could read it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Then um, they there is a another article. It's actually a new book by a fellow named Johan Hari, but it's excerpted in The Guardian and the headline in this article is your attention didn't collapse it was stolen and there's a whole new book about this it's called stolen focus why you can't pay attention and it's exactly what you might think and he's got a lot of data to back up the idea that being glued to all of the and he doesn't limit it to just your phone that this whole idea of being glued to your smartphone devices and these all these other devices, screen after screen after screen, not good for you. It's not good for your concentration. And he chronicles, in his own case, spending time, I think, uh, on vacation, essentially, 
and not you not linking up to the internet, not using a phone, not using a computer. And it's a fascinating read. And I'm going to link to that one as well on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. So if you're like many of us who still uh, are addicted to our smartphones, you can give both of them a read. So give me a call. I'm curious if you're someone that doesn't have a smartphone, how that works out for you. I tried to um, give up my smartphone, and I did it for about five days in January of 2010. I, maybe I made five, four or five days. Curtis and I had been working at this radio station, and then we went to another radio station, and I was a little depressed about that whole decision. I thought maybe I should have stayed here. I had a lot of second thoughts and, um, and you know, whatever. And I just kind of was ready to be done. I just needed some sort of a break. And I said, I'm getting rid of my phone. And then Curtis basically said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to have a producer that has no no phone that I can't reach. And uh, he, I had given up my phone. I canceled the contract and everything. And Curtis pulled some strings at Verizon to get my phone service restored. It was really something. I've never seen anybody do this before or uh, or since. So... But since then, that's the longest I've gone without a phone. It was four or five days in January of 2010. Since then, I don't think a day has gone by where I haven't looked at my smartphone. I'm curious if you've been like Jesse Ventura. We had him on the show and he's talked about how he will never get a cell phone. I'm curious if you've been someone that has experimented with the idea of not having a mobile phone. If you've had one and then you went a week without it or a month or maybe a Lenten season, the Lent's coming up, how has that worked out for you? Did you find it in, improved your concentration or anything like that? 800-848-WABC. Because I found in the five days even that I had no mobile phone, when I would see a computer, I would run to that computer to check my email, to check my uh, Facebook notifications and so forth. And you did feel a little disconnected. Uh, 800-848-9222. I got an SMS text message here from a friend of mine, a very bright guy, who writes, how many, quote, originalists of your acquaintance are eager to hear to the exact text of the Second Amendment? A fine point. A fine point. A lot of the folks that have sort of a, a, a right-wing view of the Constitution they will frequently leave out the aspect that says a well-regulated militia. But the Second Amendment is its above my pay grade, at least for today. I'll leave that to the nine Ivy League, eight Ivy League alumni that sit on the Supreme Court. 800-848-9222. And on homework or the Supreme Court, I'll get to you. I'm going to get to everybody. George Beebe coming up at 4.30 to talk about Russia and uh, I've been very interested in a lot of the comments that I got to at my interview with Russell Bentley yesterday. And uh, we're going to talk with George Beebe about some of the things that Russell Bentley said and some of the things that President Biden said yesterday as well. Uh, because the thing that's interesting to me about the whole Russia situation is you're seeing unusual bedfellows, right? Uh, basically, if you look at the people on the right, Pat Buchanan, Tucker Carlson, Rand Paul, they are saying – Similar things to what the people on the left are saying on Russia. Tulsi Gabbard, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, Glenn Greenwald. And yet you have this foreign policy establishment in Washington, bipartisan, 
that just wants to portray Vladimir Putin as this James Bond villain bent on world domination, whereas the truth is a little bit more nuanced. We're going to get into it with George Beebe at 4.30. Michael is in Manhattan. Hello, Michael. Hey, um, just going to touch on the homework thing and then on the Supreme Court. Um, homework really should be something that reinforces what you have learned in the classroom that day so that you can proceed on to the next subject matter. What that woman brought up about reading something in advance of what you're going to be learning is a good idea also. However, um, you probably have the answer to this. Where does the U.S. rank in education in uh, the world? I think it's somewhere around 40. Yeah, yeah. It's a disgrace. I mean, you have kids in the Baltimore school system, I think 30% graduate high school. In other words, with the equivalent of a uh, New York Regents capability, 30%. Very sad. But here's, here's what I wanted to say. My brother was a criminal appeals attorney. He taught in several law schools here in New York. He stopped teaching his criminal appeals case. He just retired from teaching because starting about four years ago, he found that the quality of the students, and he you had to be interviewed in order to get into his class for criminal appeals. He found that there was a severely diminished cerebral ability starting at about four years ago in these students that were going to law school hmm. here in New York. That's, uh, that's interesting. Did he have a theory as to what was the reason for that diminished capacity? No, no, I didn't discuss it. But I mean, he's had students and he used to take students into class. I mean, uh, sorry, into court and they would handle an actual appeal. He'd be sitting right next to them. The judge would know that he was sitting next to them. And some of these students from 20 years ago have had fabulous careers in law. That's interesting, Michael. Thank you. Tony's in Manhattan. Hello, Tony. Good morning. I have a good experience about the cell phone. Mm -hmm. We had another family. It wasn't my wife. That was in Athens. Um, that was an atheist, you said? No, in Greece. In Greece. In Greece. Uh -huh. Now, but this one is good. Two day, four days ago, we decided, me and my wife, to go to a hotel in Manhattan. And I live in Manhattan just to get out of the system and try to rest. So we rented the hotel in, um, can I say the name of the hotel? Yeah, sure, Tony. I mean, there's only a 50-50 chance that we'll be able to understand what, it, what you're saying anyway, but go ahead. No, uh, then uh, we rented the hotel here, Hilton. We stayed for five days. The good thing that we do is shut off. No more telephone mm. until we go home. We don't miss it. We don't need it. Yeah, uh, that's a great point, Tony. And uh, I'm sure that was, a, in many ways, a liberating experience for you. Thank you. It's funny. When I was um, on my honeymoon, I was thinking that 
I had very little mobile phone access. I think I would check my phone once a day for about five minutes. And or maybe even not, maybe once every three days for about five minutes. And it was nice not to be constantly glued to your phone. I think I had it in airplane mode so that I could still use it to take photos or to make notes about different ideas that I had. But I wouldn't use it to text, wouldn't use it to go online, wouldn't use it for social media, wouldn't even use it to use the terrific 77 WABC app. But, um, you know, I think it's nice to give yourself a break. In Tony's case, it seems like a break was beneficial. I'm not sure that I could earmark one day a week to be cell phone free or smartphone free. Could you? 800-848-WABC. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hey, good morning, Frank. Listen, here's the uh, real problem that I think people are overlooking. You said right away, I can't do this day because I have to prep for work on Monday. I can't do Friday because I have to clear all my work emails from Friday. Corporations, businesses, they give you a free phone, free data, free whatever you want. Make sure you're readily available. We won't be paying you for those hours, mind you, but you'll still be working if you have to make content in your line of work. I have to check for upcoming events or post events before I get to work, and they're getting it from it for free. Uh, JR, that is a terrific point. And in some ways, that goes back to the homework discussion that we were having last hour because France, when they prohibited or limited employers from contacting you at home and sending you work emails and so forth, that was exactly the rationale behind Hollande and the others that pushed through that law. And that's precisely the rationale for wanting to uh, limit homework for school children. They will tell you time is money and then take your time and not give you any money. Yeah, uh, Jr. I can't argue with anything you said there. 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ronkonkoma. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. I'm going to touch on a few subjects. I'm ready. How is your wife's cat doing, by the way? I will give an update uh, towards the end of this hour. Thank you for asking. Okay. Um as far as the homework, I agree with you 110%. Um, I have two kids, one in high school and one in elementary, and my daughter plays sports, and she'll be up until 10, 30, 11 o'clock doing homework. And I think what they should basically do is like a review thing, uh, two questions from each subject that they learned over the course of the day, and uh, do a review sheet. And as far as the cell phone, I at Christmas time, Frank, right before Thanksgiving until about January 15th, I come off Facebook. I think it's time to spend more time with my family. And I think I touched this with you uh, around the holidays. And uh, I just think, uh, like, my wife is addicted. And she'll tell you, addicted to our phone. And, uh, you know, she's always on it. And I think it takes a lot from your kids, watching your kids grow up. And it takes a lot from your uh, married life because... A lot of these people are just, like, zoned out, and they don't want to uh, talk and have conversation, watch movies. They're too busy with social media, and it's disgusting. Have a good night, Frank. Thank you, Joe. And, look, I will tell you, when there are times when I'm trying to give the person in front of me my undivided attention, maybe I'm at a work meeting, maybe uh, I'm at dinner, maybe I'm elsewhere, right? 
and my phone will be in my side pocket, and I'll feel it buzz. And I don't know what the buzz is. Maybe it means I have a Google Hangout message. Maybe it means I have a WhatsApp message. Maybe it means I have an SMS text message. Maybe it means I have an email. Maybe it means I have a Facebook notification. Maybe it means I have a Twitter notification. Maybe it means I have an Instagram notification. Maybe it means I have a notification from the Citizen app. Maybe it means I have a notification from the 77 WABC app. Maybe it means I have a notification with the ring alarm. I don't know what it is, but I feel it buzz. And all I could think about while I'm instead of giving the person in front of me my undivided attention, all I can think is, what is this notification that's on my phone? I have to check it. When can I check it? When will this person look away so that I can look down at my phone and check it? Can I say that I have to use the restroom so that as I use the restroom, I can glance at my mobile phone? What is this notification that I have? And, of course, 90% of the time, it's something totally insignificant. Look, maybe my life is a little bit more interesting than most people, so maybe in my case it's 85% of the time. But most of the time, the point is still the same. It's something that's completely nonsensical. Steve is in Jersey City. Hello, Steve. You're not the mayor of Jersey City, Steve Fulop, are you? What's that? You're not the mayor of Jersey City, Steve Fulop, are you? No, I don't have a pool on top of my roof. Okay, all right, good. Um, Just checking, just checking. Uh, listen, with the cell phones, what I do is when I go out, I shut them off. I do not. I refuse to look at, at my phone at all in public. You know, that's it. That's one way of reducing it. Because when you're in public, everyone is staring at one. Everyone. That's I right. I get on a bus or, or a train, and everyone on a train or bus is, is looking at one. So I just, you know, I'd rather stare at the window and look at nothing and daydream. Yeah, I, I don't blame you, Steve. So do you don't find that you suffer from any sort of withdrawal, right? Uh, no, no, I mean, no, you you know, and I guess I get thrown in Facebook jail a lot. So that, that gets me away from it too. Well, give me an idea of uh, the kind of thing you get thrown in Facebook jail for. Um, I, I'm already, I'm getting out of jail today for six days because I said that I mentioned that some truckers should do some unspeakable things to Justin Trudeau. Oh, well, I mean, I mean, uh, that's certainly maybe not worthy of being thrown in jail for, but uh, certainly not very nice, is, is it, Steve? Yeah, but Justin Trudeau isn't very nice either, so, you know. <laughs> okay. Thank Can you, you, Steve. Can you believe what that guy said? All right. Uh, we're going to continue with your calls in just a moment. Uh, this is uh, The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Still to come, George Beebe at uh, 4.30. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll talk Russia. We'll talk a wide variety of subjects in a moment. Is this your homework, Larry? Is this your homework, Larry? Look, man. Dick, please. Is this your homework, Larry? Just ask him about the car, man. Is this yours, Larry? Is this your homework, Larry? Is that your car out front? Is this your homework, Larry? We know it's his homework. Where's the money, you little brat? It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
The great Elvis Presley on the other side of midnight. This is Frank Moreno, where we discuss a wide variety of subjects. Have you been listening? I've been on now since midnight. Where else can you find this many varied subjects in one radio program? I don't know that there is a program, right, that's on the air now. Now, there's one subject that you will not hear me discuss on this program. That is La Cosa Nostra, the world of the mafia, organized crime. You will not hear me discuss it at all. You know why? Because we have a podcast dedicated exclusively to discussion of organized crime. Uh, If you have iTunes or Google Podcast or any form of uh, podcast app, Search the Racket Report, R-A-C-K-E-T, space, report, and uh, hit the subscribe button, and you will get to hear the uh, subjects that we cover on a daily basis. On this podcast, you're going to hear my exclusive interviews with gangsters, uh, with real, honest-to-God gangsters. You, and you can also, if you don't have a podcast app, uh, just go to WABCRadio.com. Otherwise, find it on Spotify, wherever. You're also going to hear my interviews with journalists like um, Larry McShane, who was the author of a book about Vinita Chinjiganti, or Tony DiStefano, who's written extensively about the Bonanno crime family. You're going to hear interviews with law enforcement officials. You're going to hear um, family members of prominent mobsters. And you are going to hear from some mob lawyers. My guest this week on The Racket Report was none other than my friend, Matthew J. Mary, who's represented some of the biggest names in organized crime over the course of the last 40 years. And we spoke a little bit about uh, we, we spoke for an hour, but we spoke a little bit about how the criminal justice system plays by a different set of rules when it comes to going after mobsters. Let's say you're charged with 10 crimes, you're acquitted of nine, you're convicted of one minor crime. Even though you've been acquitted of crimes, the judge can take it upon himself or herself to sentence you as if you were found guilty of the crimes you were acquitted of. To a certain extent, you can be given the maximum sentence on the crimes you were convicted of, which you ordinarily wouldn't get if the judge decides you are guilty of the crimes you are acquitted of. If that weren't bad enough, the government is allowed to bring up crimes that you have not been convicted of, that you have not been charged with. The government can bring up crimes that they believe you may have committed, and a judge is authorized by law to consider that. Those are a few of the issues that we spoke about in the course of our conversation. If you want to hear the whole thing, you can go to WABCRadio.com, click on podcasts, find the Racket Report, or uh, you can go to, uh, you know, again, just search the Racket Report on any podcast app. We want people to subscribe because um, we had a lot of people downloading the first episode, and then the audience kind of fell off after that. So we want to get back to where we were for the first episode. So just subscribe to the Racket Report. Hey, you know whose birthday it is today? I want to wish a happy birthday to the one and only uh, actor... Josh Gad, he voiced the character of Olaf in the film Frozen. He's also been in uh, The Rocker and uh, Beauty and the Beast, other things. Emily Blunt is 39 years old today. 
as is actor and comedian Aziz Ansari. I don't remember. What was the consensus on Aziz Ansari? Did we determine that he should be canceled for sexual assault or should not be? He was one of those guys that he had his defenders and then he had his, his people that were saying, oh, no, he's, he's not a, he's a terrible person. I don't remember where we landed on him as a society. So uh, happy birthday to everybody. And he's no longer alive, but um, uh, we would have been celebrating the birthday of actor and director Peter Fonda, one of the all-time greats, 310 to Yuma, Ghost Rider, uh, you name it, Yuli's Gold, Easy Rider, you name it, and uh, really a phenomenal talent. But for my money, the most important birthday that we're celebrating today is my sister-in-law, Sharon. Uh, She is my favorite sister-in-law, and uh, I feel terrible saying that because I have eight siblings-in-law and including at least two brothers-in-law, maybe three, that listen to the show regularly. But there's nobody that compares to Sharon. You want to talk about a five-star human being uh, who is beautiful inside and out, who is uh, kind, generous, uh, talented, and amusing, and just an overall wonderful person, you got to talk about my sister-in-law, Sharon, and uh, she does great work as an optician in on Long Island. And I, I, her husband, James, should never buy a lottery ticket because he's already won the lottery by being married to Sharon. I want to wish her a happy birthday as well to uh, celebrated New Jersey attorney Anthony Pope. Those of you that have listened to the Joe Piscopo show for any length of time have probably heard Anthony Pope. We're overdue to have Anthony on this show. He's a terrific attorney, both in terms of criminal law and civil law, and a guy who just has an incredible presence about him when he walks into a room. And uh, I want to wish a happy 38th birthday to Jenna Gambino Anderson, someone who worked in a bar that I used to attend and who I once had lunch with. About 12 years ago. I haven't seen her in about 12 years, but uh, I hope the years have been kind to Jenna Gambino Anderson. 800-848-WABC. Happy birthday to everybody celebrating a birthday today. And uh, an extra happy birthday to you if you subscribe to The Racket Report. 800-848-9222. Tom is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Tom. Hello, Frank. Good morning. Morning. Uh, you were talking about cell phones. I had just gotten my first smartphone on the 11th. They, I had a flip phone before that, but they are turning off the 3G network, and uh, I thought I'd break down and get a smartphone. And so how's your experience been so far? The damn thing didn't come with a uh, a user's manual, and I don't have computer service. I usually use the library. And it's really complicated. It had 52 apps on it, and they're all trying to steal my uh, information. They're always calling and using up the minutes. Well, I am sure you're going to get the hang of that phone, for better or worse, uh, in no time, uh, Tom. Uh, best of luck. Congratulations on the phone. I'm sorry about you losing the uh, the 3G network. Mark's in Westchester. Hello, Mark. Yes, Frank. The worst thing about the cell phones is when you have children and you're taking them out to a nice restaurant and they bring their phones. So I have politely in the last couple of months asked them to leave their phones in the vehicle. So I'm not ignored and they're not ignored. Um, 
the cell phone with children is a very dodgy thing. It takes their attention away from the reason I'm with them. Well, I, I think that's certainly true, not just of children, but of uh, adults as well. So I'm not... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that, Mark. Thank you. Roger's in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. He's been patiently holding. Hello, Roger. Yeah, hi, thanks. Uh, I wanted to comment regarding the homework. Uh, first of all, I, I agree with a lot of the points. First of all, the, the one that, that you said about maybe a longer school year and maybe slightly longer school days. I think that would be helpful. Um, to say that children shouldn't, it's too early for them to get up in the morning, well, maybe they should go to bed earlier and actually have a bedtime. I mean, that's the way I was brought up. Number th- Next, regarding homework, um, I think the homework, like everyone is kind of saying, should be meaningful. In, in other words, uh, practical. What I'm trying to say is that um, Arithmetic, English grammar, and writing, little science projects, perhaps, and maybe, and then maybe a few other subjects that are, that are relevant, uh, could be could be given as homework for two reasons. Number one, since they have left the classroom and the school, they come back home, do do homework. It, it just reminds them so that whatever they learned in the classroom doesn't go one ear and out the other. And, and not burdensome, just maybe a few problems, a few exercises in arithmetic, an exercise or two in, in, in grammar, and the science project could be maybe like an ongoing thing. Um, so, so they don't forget it, and so they get to practice, you know, long division, let's say, or how to figure out um, percentages, which they will probably need in real life. They get to practice some of these things and practice English grammar. As far as reading, maybe that's something that should be handled in the classroom. The teacher can pay attention to the way how well or how not so well they read. Um, Also, and by the way, I think we should also eliminate, oh, by the way, homework, maybe from like the fifth grade on up. Uh, But along that line, though, eliminate all the social and gender indoctrination for all of grammar school. Save it for, you know, 13 years old and up or something like that. That, that, Because children have no context in which to understand and relate that stuff. And finally, I would like to remind all of us that our grandparents and parents um, had great engineering accomplishments uh, without the help of computers or even calculators. Well, I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, when I went to the Intrepid Museum and looked at the rotary engines of the World War II plane, that was done with pencil and paper as hidden figures. I'd love to see that movie. Yeah, thank you, Roger. You said a lot there. Uh, I don't even know where to begin in terms of responding to all the things that Roger said. First of all, um, we... In terms of the school start time, I don't want to have a whole school start time debate because we did an hour on that not long ago either. And we'll revisit this again in the future. But um, you, when you say that, uh, oh, children should just go to bed earlier, it is an overly simplistic uh, argument because what we've seen 
is that um, experts, doctors, psychologists, researchers, they've found that as children enter adolescence, they are genetic, they are hardwired to stay up later and wake up later. So it's not a sim- it's not simply oh they can just flick a switch and decide to go to bed at eight o'clock instead of eleven o'clock. It, there's there are some reasons that the brain of an adolescent has them stay up later than the brain of a six year old. Um, in terms of uh, gender and racial indoctrination, look, I don't I'm I'm against any type of indoctrination. But one of the things that we're seeing here, and CBS Sunday Morning did a very good piece on this this weekend, we're seeing under the guise of banning, and again, I don't want to have a whole discussion about this either because I'm, it's like I'm poking a hornet's nest, but under the guise of banning so-called critical race theory, we're seeing a lot of uh, teachers lose lose freedom of speech and not be able to talk about things like Black History Month or Women's History Month, depending on the provision of the CRT ban that's passed in certain jurisdictions. So um, you have to ask yourself, and this is very difficult in a cable news environment, you have to ask yourself the question, right? When we're pushing something like a ban on critical race theory instruction, Are we doing that because it's really a problem in schools or are we doing it because cable news outlets have um, have let us think that there's more of a problem than there actually is? Because when I hear people talk about things like critical race theory, the legislative prescriptions that they end up supporting don't solve the problems that they end up complaining about. And I really look, you know what a fan I am of Michael Smirconish. And he I was grateful that he was a guest on the show. I subscribe to his newsletter. I listen to him on radio. I watch him on TV every Saturday. I wish there were more broadcasters like Michael Smirconish. But what he started doing in his newsletter is at the bottom of his newsletter, there's he's partnered with a research organization, and they list all the stories that are covered everywhere on the left, but nowhere on the right. And all the stories that are covered everywhere on the right, but nowhere on the left. And it's in some ways, it's kind of like the discussion that I was having about the Supreme Court is if you only expose yourself to media that echoes your point of view, you end up missing a whole lot of stuff. And that is one of my big concerns is that I'm concerned that the country is becoming more and more tribal. Now, if you go back to the 1960s, I mean, it wasn't a good thing that people only had three or four channels to watch. But with everybody watching um, Ed Sullivan on television, with everybody watching the same network news broadcasts, everyone sort of began with the foundation that 2 plus 2 was 4. We've lost that because we now live in an era that from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, you can be exposed only to media that reaffirms your view of the world, whether that's a conservative view, a liberal view, or you want to take it outside of politics. Let's take it outside of politics. Could have to do with uh, only a sports view, only a hip hop view, 
only a uh, whatever. It, it could be cultural as much as political. And what we've ended up with is, and this is as much a sociological problem as it is a political one, we've ended up with people that don't view their neighbors as folks that they're in the same country with. They view people that they may disagree with politically as the enemy. And I think that's so dangerous, so dangerous. By the way, I read a a fascinating, fascinating uh, interview with Francis Ford Coppola in GQ magazine. And uh, I really I really like Coppola, and I'm hoping to be able to have the opportunity to interview him maybe as we get closer to the 50th anniversary of The Godfather, which is this year. But he did this interview with GQ, and um, he talks about how the, he's dreamt for years of making this film called Megalopolis, And I read this interview twice, and I still can't understand what the plot of this movie is about. Apparently, it takes place in some sort of futuristic, utopian version of New York City called New Rome. And it's a love story, but it also has to do with the nature of man. And it's very complicated. And Coppola thinks this is going to cost over $100 million to make. And no studio wants to make this film. And no studios wanted to make it for a long time. And uh, we're now Coppola and I went back and and Coppola wasn't, um, you know, blowing smoke because I went back and read an interview that he did in 2010. And he was talking about this film idea back then, Megalopolis. He is going to finance the entire film himself and he is prepared to spend one hundred twenty million dollars of his own money in order to make this film Megalopolis. Now, I, I give the guy credit for having some onions. I mean, you talk about a guy that's prepared to put his money where his mouth is. And he's done this before. You know, he points out in this GQ piece that he owns all the rights to Apocalypse Now because no other studio wanted to make Apocalypse Now. You think of that. And he talks about how Coppola was only, he was not even 40 years old at the time. And he'd already won every award there was, every Academy Award, every Golden Globe. And he had had a lot of hit films. Of course, the two most notable ones being The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. Had many more hits, though, as a producer as well. And even though he had all these hits, box office hits, uh, hits that were uh, critically acclaimed, he couldn't get a single studio to make Apocalypse Now. So he made it himself with his own money, and he owns that movie to this day. And so... Coppola sold off, and this is a guy who in the nine in uh, in uh, the eighties and nineties went bankrupt, I believe, three times. But Coppola, in order to make this movie Megalopolis, sold off a big portion of his wine empire. And if you listen to his description, now maybe he's more bothered by this or more nervous about this than he's letting on. But it, basically, he's saying if he loses all hundred twenty million of this money then um, he's going to be just fine. His children will be fine. His grandchildren will be fine. And he's not worried about it. Evidently, this wine empire brings in, according to Coppola, half a billion dollars every year. This is extraordinary. So it got me thinking about uh, different people uh, like Byron Allen, for instance, who now owns the Weather Channel, started out as a comedian. Uh, People like, um, you know... uh, uh, 
you know, all sorts of folks across the uh, across the board who start as doing one thing and then they end up making a an industry for themselves. Glenn Beck in media, for instance, um, or, uh, you know, you name it. I mean, there's all sorts of other people. That, Glenn, Glen, Glenn Greenwald for a time when he started The Intercept, they start at doing one thing. Maybe it's being a comedian. Maybe it's being a journalist. Maybe it's being a, a talk show host. Maybe it's being a filmmaker. And then they branch out into, you know, some sort of a, a media empire or some sort of a, a lucrative business empire that gives them the freedom to pursue a lot of uh, a lot of other things. So uh, Coppola is doing very well with this wine business, which uh, extends to the resort business as well. He sells cigars named for his father, Carmine, as well, which I didn't know. And uh, I was th- I was trying to make a list of things that I could do. But the problem that I have is I really don't know how to do anything else. I wouldn't know how to uh, make wine or, uh, or or be in the cigar business or anything like that. So you know what I need is something like George Foreman had, where somebody comes to me and says, hey, be the face of our, I don't know, solar-powered flashlight. And we'll give you a percentage of everything that we make. <clears throat> that would be, that would be something, right? And I could have the freedom to. You want your things. own grill? Well, I, I feel like that idea is, is now taken. Do you I, know the story I need the about next that, thing. that grill, supposedly? Yeah, I, I don't think it's true. I know the story you're about to tell where they offered it to Hulk Hogan, yeah, supposedly. Yeah, he said it. He was the one who said it. Yeah, I, I, I've done some research on that, and I think that. Um, Hogan's blowing smoke. I, I, I think that uh, Hogan, as he often does, yeah. has uh, exaggerated significantly Probably. what actually happened right. there. Um, but uh, just on the subject of Coppola, he tried to do something like this 40 years ago when he tried to make a film called One from the Heart, put all his own money into it, went bankrupt, went bankrupt and ended up owing his partner millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. And then he had to make, he basically was a director for hire, directing the kind of films that he wouldn't make. Now, some were better than others, but that was the period that he made The Godfather Part Three. He did it basically as a hired, a hired gun. So 800-848-9222. Uh, but so you know what I've noticed? In, when it comes to all these media personalities, because there was an interesting article on the website for Barrett Sports Media, and... Uh, Basically, it chronicle the the headline by in this article by Pete Mundo was that big tech allows for talented people to get around gatekeepers of media. Now we're blessed to have an owner, John Katsimatidis, that gives me total freedom to pursue whatever I want to pursue on this show. But a lot of other people that are in the media are not so lucky. And he links to this tweet from a gentleman named Bobby Burak who talks about how Joe Rogan got $200 million for three and a half years from Spotify. David Portnoy uh, from Barstool Sports, who does these pizza reviews, he got $100 million for the sale of Barstool Sports. Bill Simmons, who I don't even know who that is, he got $100 million for the sale of Ringers. The Call Her Daddy podcast, the person that does that, got $60 million for three years. Pat McAfee is getting... $30 $30 million a year. I don't even know who Pat McAfee is, but apparently he or she is getting $30 million a year. And then 
um, he goes and chronicles in this article all sorts of other people that are doing very, very well and started out as one thing and have blown up doing something else or doing the same thing on a much broader scale. And so as best I can tell, the one thing that all these entities have in common, whether we're talking sports, politics, uh, aliens, whatever, uh, pizza, is they all have massive social media followings. So I'm going to ask you, do do me a solid and help me get one of these 60 or $70 million deals. And the best thing that you can do in that respect is follow me on social media. So go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Press like or follow, whatever you do. And then help me build a social media empire so I can go to, you know, I don't know, Spotify 2.0 and say, hey, you want access to the 500,000 people that we're reaching on a daily basis? You know, here, give me a 60 or $70 million. So if you want to help make me a uh, gazillionaire, the best thing that you can do, follow me on Facebook. Encourage your friends to do so as well. Facebook.com slash Morano fan or on Twitter at Frank Morano. And uh, we're even on Instagram, uh, at, although I don't post that much on there, at Morano Vision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O uh, Vision. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Frank Marano, 77 WABC. Baby, I like your stuff. Grips on your waist, front way, back way. This is Drake, One Dance. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. It's February 23rd. Uh, It was on this day in 1848 that John Quincy Adams died at the age of 80. By the way, speaking of films, one of my favorite films, and I haven't seen it in far too long, and I don't know if my wife has seen it. Maybe I'll, that'll be my excuse to rewatch it. I'll show it to her. Is Amistad, which is a wonderful film, pretty accurate historically as well, with uh, Anthony Hopkins, who's one of the greatest actors of all time, playing John Quincy Adams. He is phenomenal in that film. And uh, it was on this day in 1945 that Marines from the 5th Marine Division raised the American flag atop uh, the island of the Japanese island of Iwo Jima. So, and very sadly, on this day in 1960, the demolition of Ebbets Field began. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Oh, by the way, before I forget, I know a lot of you had asked the status of my stepcat, Beth Sheba. If you didn't hear yesterday's show, my wife's favorite cat, we have three cats. My wife had them long before we lived together. And by far, her favorite cat is Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is the the only one that's really nice to people other than Rachel and me. If you come over the house, the first thing my wife will tell you, and we have strangers stopping by almost on a daily basis, the first thing that she will tell you is don't pet the gray one. You won't see the white one. You can only pet the black one. And she loves it. She's such a, um, a, a good girl, honestly. And... The um, 
she had lost weight all of a sudden. So my wife took her to the veterinarian yesterday. They still have all these COVID restrictions, so she had to drop her off there. They took her blood and her urine sample. We won't get those results for a couple of days. She does have a conjunctivitis that um, that they gave her medicine for. So who knows? Maybe that'll help the weight loss issue. Probably not. That's probably unconnected to the weight loss. But uh, I got a lot of nice emails from people wishing her the best. And I will tell you, according to my wife, the veterinarian was very impressed with how well-behaved Bathsheba was, even though um, I'm sure Bathsheba was not happy that she was getting urine and blood samples taken from her. She rubbed right up against the veterinarian and the tech, and she was just as friendly as can be with them, uh, just as as she is with everybody. So I really am hoping that the cat uh, is uh, is fine and whatever her health issues are, Turn out to be minor. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Chris is in Elmsford, New York. Hello, Chris. Hey, what's up, man? Wow, those are a lot of stories, man. And I'm sorry about the cat, and I wish for a speedy recovery. Thank but you. I was going to say um, about a caller who called. He said the best thing for kids as regards education after school is to just give them, like he said, a few problems to answer. You know, let them remind them and refresh their memory what they learn throughout the course of the day. Also, if you can, Frank, please tell people, broadcast it everywhere, man, that um, we need math. And uh, there's a movie on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And there's also a website I found called archive.org. And all you got to pretty much do is type in math. And it gave me 28 different math disciplines to work towards my math PhD. PhD. Really? So you're pursuing your PhD now? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I'm only got like, you know, 22 credits, you know, and I was going for um, civil technology working towards architecture, but I decided I need math. There's um, a page on um, a book a guy wrote, Behold a Pale Horse Horse" by William Cooper. And on page 39, they said that the uh, bookkeeper can be king if the public can be kept ignorant of the method of bookkeeping, namely mathematics. So... Uh, social dilemma found out you algorithms know, are being that used. that's actually that's in my queue or my lit my whatever they call it uh the digital equivalent of a queue that's on my list from netflix the social dilemma my friend jessica uh she, she had seen that she said it was terrific she recommended it as well so i i don't know that i'm going to get to it anytime soon because finding the two hours necessary to watch a movie seems to be a real struggle but i, I will see that I, i'm told it's great yeah, definitely. And I'll make sure I'm at archive.org. All you have to do is type in math and it'll give them free books. They might have to actually sign up to borrow them, but a lot of them are in downloadable PDF format that you could use with Adobe Viewer. Uh, I will definitely check that out. Archive.org. Chris, thank you. Those of you that are holding, we will get to you next hour. George Beebe, a man who is frequently referred to as one of the smartest guests we've ever had. We'll be here in a half hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Grant, your influence counts. So you might as well use it, right? This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, 
Good morning, everyone. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'm a gambler. Uh, again, I haven't been to Atlantic City in a while, uh, but uh, I do like to go. I haven't been since uh, December 30th because of the baby. I'm hoping we can make a trip. Um, probably not going to make it before Ash Wednesday, right? So uh, hopefully, right after right after Easter, I'm hoping we can go. Um, but uh, and and do a nice trip there and get a lot done and see a lot of people. We do the AC report on this show every Thursday morning at three thirty. I don't have anything scheduled yet, but I'm working on a couple of different things. But anyway, um, the point is, I like to go to Atlantic City, even aside from the gambling. But the gambling's a nice bonus. I like to play craps. I like to play baccarat, some blackjack now and again, even a little bit of uh, sports betting. Look, we knew. With more and more jurisdictions legalizing sports betting, that we were going to see gambling go up overall in the legal gambling go up overall in this country. We knew that, right? We knew that uh, what they did in New York in January of legalizing mobile sports betting was going to cause gambling profits, profits from gambling operators. And profits from the local governments that are also benefiting from this. We knew that that was going to go up pretty significantly, right? You don't have to bet with a bookie anymore. You want to bet on the Jets or the Giants or on the Super Bowl. You can do it legally from your phone. We knew that was all going to happen. However, I don't think anyone, not me, not any industry analyst, not any journalist, I don't think anyone was prepared for what we've just seen. The nation's commercial casinos generated more revenue in 2021 than any other year in American history, according to the American Gaming Association. Gross gaming revenue in the United States reached 53 billion dollars breaking the previous industry record of 43.65 billion dollars which was set in 2019 2019 is a good year in terms of comparison because there were about as many casinos obviously you have more jurisdictions legalizing sports betting since then and 2020 was such a weird year because everything was closed but gross gaming revenue reached 53 billion dollars more than $10 billion than was the case in 2019. The American Gaming Association president, Bill Miller, said these results are nothing short of remarkable. Here's what he's saying. And, uh, I mean, I, I wonder when people give quotes like this. Do they do it with a straight face or is it one of those things where, okay, I know I'm lying. I know that you know I'm lying, but just print what I'm saying anyway so that I can retain my title and say whatever I have to do. The success of 2021 reflects our commitment to health and safety and how Americans have welcomed gaming's expansion across the country. Today's industry is effectively meeting customers how and where they want to engage, whether at a casino or through mobile gaming. Now, maybe I'm a little harsh on him, but 
He's basically saying that the reason 2021 was so successful in terms of gaming revenue is because casinos are meeting players' needs. That is not the case at all. Because I go to casinos I, a lot. Uh, this in twenty in twenty twenty one, I played in casinos in the Catskills, in Atlantic City, and in Las Vegas. And the one common theme wherever I went was it seemed like the players were unhappy with various changes that the casinos had made. So for Bill Miller to say that they're doing such a great job, I have not found that to be the case. Now, look, two factors in these numbers are obvious. One is the expansion of of sports betting. Two is the expansion of mobile betting, legally. But this is an astronomical number. The biggest year in the history of casino profitability. What do you attribute this to? Because I think it has to be more than just the two factors that I cited. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Gross gaming revenue last year reached $53 billion. Or as uh, Dr. Evil would say, $53 billion. Why do you think that's the case? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. That's the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. Brendan Bussman, who's the Director of Government Affairs uh, for Global Market Advisors, says he's not surprised by the numbers based on the months leading up to the end of the year. 2020 being the partial year that it was, it was set up for a good 2021. Okay, I'd buy that. People were fed up. They It was the case with me. You couldn't really play. You, you're kind of cooped up. And then uh, once 2021 comes out, you're ready to break out. You're ready to rage. It just shows, this is Brendan Bussman, it just shows that gaming is a wildly popular form of entertainment and continues to grow across the country. It's one that people enjoy and continually find ways to partake in whether it be through traditional casino gaming or sports betting or the eventual eventual probability of iGaming as an acceptable form of government. I don't even really understand totally what iGaming is. I don't know if that means betting on uh, interactive uh, games like uh, you know video games like Fortnite. I know my sister is very big into Fortnite. I don't even know what Fortnite is, but I know she's into it. Uh, or if that means gambling within the metaverse. So according to what this fellow Bill Miller has said, traditional brick-and-mortar gaming, not not mobile betting, traditional brick-and-mortar, led the industry's recovery with 2021 combined slot and table gaming revenue totaling $44.9 billion, billion a 6.6% increase over 2019 which was a record. Sports betting growth accelerated, uh, generating $57.2 billion in handle and $4.29 billion in revenue. That means basically money they have to pay out as well. The sector's all-time high was powered by strong demand in the established markets 
of Nevada, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and further boosted by the launch of seven new commercial sports betting markets in Arizona, Connecticut, Louisiana, Maryland, South Dakota, Virginia, and Wyoming. So there's two new iGaming markets, Connecticut and Michigan. They also opened up in 2021, helping the sector to a record $3.7 billion in revenue. So combined sports betting and iGaming revenue for the year totaled $8 billion. That is up 158% from the previous year. What do you think this is all due to? 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-WABC. Tom is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tom. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Um, I, I, I think one of the reasons is the COVID money. Everybody got this extra COVID money, and they got a little uh, rich. You know, they say, oh, I'm going to go go gamble some money. The other one is boredom from not going to work, you know? Uh, I, I think you might be right on both counts. A lot of people who wouldn't otherwise have the money to gamble, they were given a check as part of the COVID stimulus, and because yep. they weren't working... Uh, they they didn't have to take off from work to make a trip to a casino. Roger that. I, I think those are both two key factors. 800-848-WABC. What do you think the reason for this is? A record year in this country in casino gambling. Some reasons are obvious. Others may not be so obvious. 800-848-9222. David is in New Jersey. Hello, David. Yeah, hi. Um, Frank, you've... Um... Hit another home run with your comments. You're right on target. Um, I um, I've become a person who controls my gambling. I don't I, I don't I don't bet big. I just but I but I can tell you that um, this is the tough these are the tough six months for sports betting now because it's clearly it's clearly NFL is is head and shoulders. The place. Well, plus um, now with the baseball lockout, they may even delay opening day. So even though baseball li- betting is limited, uh, you're not even going to be able to do that. Well, the the unholy alliance between the NFL and FanDuel and DraftKings, you know, the big the big betting houses, and the other one, Caesars, is is spending millions with Halle Berry and and you know the um this the Larry David guy, right? JB Smooth, names. yeah, JB Smooth. You know, I mean, these places, I mean, it's basically the Super Bowl brought to you by FanDuel and DraftKings, you know, I mean, and, you know, as you're probably aware, I mean, it's not like it's not like football the way it used to be, where you you put your you put something on the game and that's and and then you watch it. Now it's prop after prop. Oh, yeah. Quarterly betting. And um, can can I just give a. um, can I can I just just give a a, a little uh, plug for um, a, a great podcast called Straight Out of Vegas? Well, I just did. So, um, they're they're um, they're done by a, a, probably the king of Las Vegas sports betting, who sets almost all that. Who works with uh, Westgate is uh, R.J. Bell, and and this guy, it, it, these people, to listen to this, I, I understand way more than I ever should have about the whole process, but. It it I've I, I and the thing is, um, Frank, they these companies are throwing money at their at their clients. They're, they're they're giving you so many come ons to just keep playing, and and this is really tough stuff for them now. The Super Bowl is it's really the it's really the desert for them. The, well, it doesn't look like they're hurting, David. Though it looks like uh, people. Uh, we'll see. We'll we see. will indeed. We'll see. We will indeed. Something tells me these uh, casinos and gaming companies are going to be just 
Fine. 800-848-9222. What is your view of why this is happening? 800-848-WABC. Carol is in Queens. Hello, Carol. Hi, Frank. What a treat to speak with you. Likewise. Thank Um, you. Well, thank you. I didn't call about the sports gambling, but I agree with that other fellow. I think it's mainly boredom. Um, What I called about was your earlier caller, um, because I'm a senior, too, and I had the same situation. My my, um, flip phone, they cut me off, so I had to go to a a 4G, (laughs) and it was a one heck of a learning curve for about a month, but a buddy of mine downloaded a whole um, bunch of, it was 20 pages, um, right from the company. And I just started practicing and going through all the stuff. And I ended up getting comfortable with it. It only took me a month. And I'm so glad I have it now. So he shouldn't be discouraged. Well, that is great to hear. Good for you, Carol. And uh, I I hope he's still listening and you're, you're a model, and uh, I hope uh, a lot of our listeners follow your lead in terms of, well, even if it's not just for a smartphone, but learning new skills in general. It's something that can keep your brain sharp, and it's something that's important for everybody to do, especially those of us that are getting uh, getting a little older. Right, Carol? There you go. <laughs> exactly. And it's a feeling of accomplishment, too, quite frankly. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, I uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, 800-848-WABC. That's 800 848 Nine two two two. Let me say hello to Jim in Afton, New York. Hello, Jim. Hey, Frank. What's going on? I think it's a high high misery index with the gambling people. Like, just like you know, when you go to Atlantic City, you forget everything. You're in the glitz and glamour, and you break out the cigar, play high roller. It's a high misery index with society. That's you know, I was wondering if up. someone was going to say that uh, because. I think there might be something to that as well. All right, Jim. Anything else you want oh, to no, add there? I'm, I'm still here. Yeah, well, you're also talking about the podcasting, like Joe Rogan. Hello. Yeah. Joe Rogan had access, has access to famous people. That's how uh, Larry King, Oprah, you know, I mean, people want to hear what famous people have to say. And I've, the only time I ever listened to Joe Rogan, I don't listen to him anymore, was when he had famous people on. Or certain comics. I like certain comics. But Joe Rogan basically copied Adam Carolla, who had nowhere really to go after the, Jimmy Kimmel left the man, you know, shut the man show down and went to whatever he went to, the Tonight Show. Uh, uh, what's his face? Adam Carolla just took a shot with his podcast and took it to a professional level. And, and uh, what's his face? Rogan was friends with, and was friends with uh, Adam Carolla and pretty much copied what he did. But he... Rogan had the you know the MMA the UFC you know, he did have Fear Factor but Rogan was really nothing special except but I but he has access to famous people so your show I thought was going to be more like an uh, Art Bell type show you know with scary paranormal stuff but you got five hours to fill so you, so your problem is it's hard to you got five hours to fill so there's going to be some stuff that isn't exciting as other stuff you know what I mean well I don't know about Two that hours. I find it pretty exciting it is exciting for you. But I see me. I could care less about local politics and congressmen well, and all that. But I don't live I, down here. I don't do that much of that during the uh, during the four hours when I was filling in for Dominic at midnight. You know, again, he he focuses more on local politics. So I, I didn't. Right. I don't. I don't. Re- I don't really do. 
as much I actually do more discussion of local politics in off the air in my real life than I do uh, on the air. But uh, that was sort of a left-handed uh, compliment that uh, that Joe gave us there. But it is interesting. Um, I, you know, I look. I think I'm sure there's some truth to what uh, you know he's saying there. But I don't think that it was just a function of Joe Rogan having access to famous people. I also don't think it was as simple as he makes it sound, Joe Rogan copying that Adam Carolla format. There's an interesting article in The Atlantic this month by Derek Thompson chronicling the rise of populist flamethrowers, provocateurs from outside traditional party politics, uh, people like Joe Rogan, people like Elon Musk, people like uh, Dave Portnoy and others that have become sort of these big cultural flashpoints. And during a time of hyperpolarization in politics, the personalities that Derek Thompson chronicles in this piece for The Atlantic, they brand themselves free thinkers, untethered to political dogma, offending core tenets of every political party's worldview. And um, he calls it, he he dubs these entertainers, DGAF populists don't give a blank populists noting that the same qualities that make them popular are the qualities that make them a nightmare for publicly traded companies like Spotify or Netflix. They're big precisely because they don't say no. They don't just say no to the prevailing discourse and the prevailing culture. And they they explicitly say, screw you. And that's what some of the analysts that are quoted in these articles are saying is the heart of their appeal. Maybe that's where I uh, lose out, right? Maybe I'm too nice. I don't really say screw you to anybody. You know, I I don't think I'm tethered to any specific political dogma or ideology. But whereas all these guys that are chronicled in this article, the narrative is they say to hell with everybody, to hell with everything. Uh, I try to get along with everybody. 800-848-WABC. Hank is in New Jersey. Hello, Hank. How are you? Very good. Thank you for taking the call, Frank. Sure. I think one of the the COVID is the, the driving force behind people picking up betting. But I think it's more the accessibility, the easiness. You call up whoever you got to call up. You give them your credit card, and you, you, you run into the credit card, goes you know, dead. Now, it's, when I say accessibility, you don't have to find, you know, when you Right, I don't have to thing. take my cash to a cashier's window to get the chips and then play with the chips and then take the chips exactly. back to the window. Exactly. That's a great point, Hank. That's a great point. But, but also, you don't have to find a bookie, you know. Right. You, or call up your cousin or uncle and say, hey, I, do you know a guy? And uh, this way, it's a lot cleaner, a lot easier. Uh, but it's also a lot devastating because this is going to destroy... A lot of the blue collar and less of people uh, because they're just going to blow the money away. Thank you, Frank. Have a, stay safe. Thank you, Hank. Hey, you know what we're going to do? Uh, speaking of winning money, we're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000. If you can answer 10 questions, 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. We're going to give you an opportunity to play the $1,000 minute. And uh, so far, we've been pretty lucky. We've had some winners recently, and uh, we have uh, had some people not just win the 1000 I got a nice note from somebody that won the 1000 the other day. 
thanking not only me, but John Katsimatidis for getting that money out to him. But uh, we, we've been doing very well. And, you know, in terms of people, someone won a consolation prize the other day, eight hundred or $100, 800-848-9222, be the seventh caller right now. Corey is in Brooklyn. Hello, Corey. Hey, Frank. Uh, I think playing with the chips and going to the casino is half the fun of it. Um, but So do I, by the me. way. So do I. That's so why I don't know. do any of those mobile uh, mobile betting things. And I'm uh, one of these people who sits and calls my bookie all day long, so... Um, but you did have a caller, and he was talking about how uh, Joe Rogan and Corolla—they have no show. I happen to—I think their shows are great. I think that um, Joe Rogan's show is awesome, kind of like yours, because he just has these random people on, and they don't have to be according to what he believes in. Like he had Bob Lazar on, and people like that twice, and just many people as you could think of and and just lets people speak and i i thought i think both of their shows are great corolla's a little more produced whereas joe rogan's show is more free flowing well and- I, you know again i don't listen to enough of it uh to uh, make a judgment but based on uh, friends of mine and family that are fans of uh, of rogan I would agree, and uh, you know, I like that he has a diversity of guests. It's not all one type of uh, one type of guest. Yeah, and when I find a guest that I like, especially I learned a lot. I've learned a lot from certain different people that I would never listen to. Well, just kind of like your show, but they're not as good as your show. Well, thank you, Corey. That's uh, that's what I love to hear. I appreciate that. And get ready in a few minutes when we talk with George Beebe. You're about to learn a great deal, and so am I about uh, the subject of what's happening in Russia when we talk with George Beebe in just a few minutes. Uh, but uh, first, it is time for... The others. Matt, I feel like I'm always taking you by surprise whenever I... Whenever I go to an element or a, or a, or a piece of I thought of we audio. were doing something else first. Oh, uh, what, what did you think we were doing? I thought we were going to go to break first and oh, then right. do the thousand. Would, would you feel better about that? Do you want to do that? We could do that. If, all right. Well, if, would if, you feel better? Would I would feel okay. better at well, this point. Well, <laughs> it, you know, much like uh, that, that uh, caller's interpretation of what the Supreme Court does, it's all about Matt's feelings. So we're going to take <laughs> a break and allow him to uh, do his thing. All right, George Beebe joining me in just a few minutes, and we will give one lucky person an opportunity to win $1,000 after these words. Frank Marano, 70 Checker, encouraging everybody to do the twist. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're going to talk with the smartest, one of the smartest Russia analysts in the world, George Beebe. He's going to join me in uh, just a minute. But uh, first, we're going to give one lucky, lucky person an opportunity to win some money. The other side of midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. 
Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's meet today's contestant, Arthur, on Staten Island. I would love to see a Staten Islander win this money. Hello there, Arthur. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, You've heard this contest before, Arthur. Yes. All right, so you know uh, the rules. You're going to have a minute. This timer will start after I ask you the first question. And uh, if you answer a question correctly, I'm just going to move on to the next question. You ready to go? Okay. Okay. Don't get flustered. Take your time. Don't get nervous. If a question sounds easy, it is. Uh, don't, uh, Don't think it's a trick. All right. Name a dinosaur. What traditional Irish American holiday is celebrated in March? Uh, St. Patrick's Day. Who is the current Secretary of State? Uh, uh, Manus. Sorry? Um. No, um, uh, I can't think. I'm sorry. All right, that's okay. Um, it's uh, it's early. It's early, Arthur. Don't don't feel bad. Tony Blinken is the current Secretary of uh, of State. So, uh, Philippe, get Arthur's information. We'll give him a a consolation prize of some sort. And if uh, you want to get some cool stuff. You can go to the WABC Radio Store at WABCRadioStore.com. You know, I do feel almost as if, um, you know, that I'm speaking into the ether here. Because I must say Tony Blinken's name in in the context of the Russia discussion alone, I must say it 50 times in a show. It's like uh, my microphone might be off. I don't realize. But I guess Tony Anthony was just – excuse me, Arthur was just – I don't know. Could be be a little tired. It's a little early. Now – Somebody who uh, his brain seems to be fully functioning, no matter what time of day or night is, is George Beebe. George Beebe is the vice president and director of studies at the Center for the National Interest. He's also the author of a terrific book that will expand your understanding of the Russia situation. It's called The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Catastrophe. George, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you, Frank. Well, uh, let me play for you a piece of audio of President Biden after Vladimir Putin's decision to recognize these two breakaway Ukrainian republics yesterday. This was uh, President Biden yesterday. So I'm going to begin to impose sanctions in response far beyond the steps we and our allies and partners implemented in 2014. And if Russia goes further with this invasion, we stand prepared to go further as with sanctions. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors? This is a flagrant violation of international law and demands a firm response from the international community. So the president and the White House seeming to say that this invasion of Ukraine has already begun. Uh, A lot of media sources, including the Associated Press and, uh, and other outlets, they are uh, trying to figure out, it seems, whether or not this actually is an invasion. Uh, from your perspective, is this an invasion? Has Vladimir Putin begun an invasion of Ukraine? 
Well, yes, I think he has. Um, he coupled that announcement of uh, formally recognizing the independence of these uh, so-called republics in eastern Ukraine with an ultimatum to the Ukrainian government demanding that the Ukrainian government recognize the independence of, of these uh, republics, um, that it also recognize that Crimea is now a part of Russia, uh, not no longer a part of Ukraine, and that it disarm, that it give up uh, all of the weaponry that uh, the United States and NATO have provided to Ukraine in the past few months. Those are not the kinds of things that you say if you're looking for some sort of deal. Uh, this is an ultimatum, and I think the only question here is uh, how far and how fast uh, Russian forces go uh, into Ukraine itself. In terms of the uh, the president's response, President Biden's response to what Russia did, he has instituted um, sanctions, and he's indicating that we may even see more sanctions. Now, the threat of sanctions is not a new one. We've seen uh, sanctions in place in various forms or another for years now. Um, is that the, in your opinion, is that the right move for the United States to pursue? What are the sanctions as we know them now and will they have any sort of an effect in your judgment? Well, uh, the question is what kind of an effect will they have, not will they have an effect. Uh, they'll certainly have an effect. They're, they're going to um, result in a, in a dramatically different economic situation for the world. Um, that's going to affect all of us, not just the Russians. Um, the question really is, will this affect Putin's decision-making calculus? And I think the answer so far is no. Um, the problem that here is, is not the use of sanctions. The problem here is the goal. What are we trying to produce here? If we thought or think that sanctions by themselves will prevent the Russians from um, proceeding into Ukraine from launching a war, I think we already know the answer to that. The answer is no. Um, sanctions would have been a useful tool had they been aimed at producing a compromise. The compromise would have to be a mutual compromise where the United States and NATO conceded some things in return for Russian, Russia conceding some things. What, what instead we tried to do was say, well, we're not going to address your key concerns. Uh, the red line of NATO expansion, the possibility of Ukraine becoming uh, a NATO ally, uh, is off the table. We, we've said that consistently. Biden said that from the very start. So, so long as we weren't willing to discuss Russia's core concern, sanctions at that point were useless. And, and that's where we are right now. In some ways, it seems like um, Russia is maybe not sanction proof, but maybe able to withstand sanctions more than uh, some other countries might be. I know they have uh, they've uh, promoted important. Uh, they've shifted a lot of their trade to Asia, for instance. Uh, they have um, diverted oil and gas revenue and expanded their currency reserves. Is Russia kind of 
Have they prepared for these sanctions effectively in a way that enables them to ride this storm out from your perspective? Well, that's exactly what they've been doing for many, many years. Um, From Russia's perspective, uh, sanctions on the part of the United States have been a constant, not a variable. Um, Putin's perspective on this is that uh, these sanctions really don't change uh, according to Russia's behavior. Um, He believes the United States was going to do this anyways, that they were fundamentally uh, just anti-Russian. They want that that the United States and and NATO simply want to isolate and punish Russia. They would do it anyways, regardless of what Russia does. Um, And they have been uh, paying down their debt uh, for for many, many years. Um, They've been building up their reserves, uh, reducing um, their dependence on uh, the dollar for trading, um, and doing their best to sanction-proof their economy. Now, they still will suffer. There's no question that this will have an impact on the Russians. Uh, But when uh, you look at uh, Ukraine not as something that's nice to do, but something that's absolutely essential uh, from Russia's perspective to Russia's survival, then, of course, you're going to be willing to put up with some economic pain in order to ensure that your country survives. And that's the way the Russians are looking at this. You you alluded uh, to the fact that uh, that it's all about NATO expansion and Ukraine inclusion in NATO from the West perspective and from Putin's perspective. I had someone over my house uh, yesterday, and uh, they had not been following the story at all, but then had seen all the news headlines of, uh, of Putin and Ukraine. And they said, look, I'm a little embarrassed to ask this, but why does Putin want to invade Ukraine? I imagine, and this was a very smart person that asked this, um, I imagine if that person asked this, then there are others that are similarly situated. Why does Putin want to invade Ukraine? Is it all about not wanting NATO to expand to its borders, or is there something else afoot there? Well, um, there is something else afoot there. Uh, There's a long history uh, between uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, and also with Belarus. Uh, The Russians think of uh, those three countries as having a common Slavic heritage, uh, a common origin for their uh, culture and and civilization. Uh, The white Russians uh, or Belarusians, um, Russia itself, and what they call the little Russians, smaller Russians or Ukrainians, all with sort of a common heritage and history. Um, So this is a sensitive point. Um, The uh, the other problem here, of course, is that the Russians fear invasion. Um, now, we look at that and we think that's ridiculous. You know, we have no intention of invading. Um, but uh, the Russians are a country that, that lacks uh, natural geographic defenses against invasion. It's like a giant plane. Um, it, there's not mountain ranges uh, separating its territory from from other potential invaders. It doesn't have two giant oceans like we do that are natural protection against invasion. And they've experienced invasion repeatedly over the, the centuries. 
Their solution to this is to put as much geographic distance as they can between the heartland of Russia and potential invaders. Um, and, you know, this has been effective for them as, uh, as Hitler and Napoleon experienced. Um, so Ukraine is central to all of this. It's central to their culture and history. It's also central to their sense of vulnerability to outside invasion. Um, now, you started this by uh, citing Biden, saying, you know, countries can't just recognize other territories as independent. Well, that's what we did. Where? In, in Yugoslavia, in mm. Kosovo. That was a situation where um, weeks after NATO first moved eastward and took Poland, uh, the Czech Republic, and Hungary into the alliance, we started bombing Yugoslavia. Why? Not for things that the Yugoslavs did outside their territory, but for abuses of Kosovar Albanians inside their country. And we did that without the United Nations voting to say, yes, that's authorized activity. We did it because we said, well, this is wrong. It's up to us morally to stop the Yugoslav government from abusing its own citizens. And the Russians looked at this and said, well, what's the limiting function here? How do we know you won't do this somewhere else? And we said, well, we decide whether this is right or not. And, and I think Putin asked himself, well, what would prevent NATO from doing this in Russia itself, mm -hmm. you know, against the Russian government, for example, uh, abusing Chechen citizens? And his answer was, the only thing that would prevent that would be the Russian military. So that's really what's driving this. And when, when he says, you know, I think NATO is a legitimate threat, that's the example he's looking to and saying, hey, I'm not imagining this. This has happened and it could happen again. One of the things that it seems has occurred in recent years is there seems to be an increasing coziness between the governments of Russia and China that may not have existed previously. Have has the United States, due to our policy with Russia, which has generally been marked by hostility, has the United States, in your view, driven Russia into the arms of China? Yes, is the uh, simple answer to that. Um, no, it's, a, it's a complicated question. Uh, to some degree, the relationship between Russia and China would have uh, gotten cozier regardless of what the United States did. But I think we have artificially accelerated the pace of uh, uh, improved relations between uh, Russia and China on the one hand. And secondly, we've done it in a way that has encouraged them to work against us, to work against American interests. So the nature of that cooperation has become anti-American <clears throat> and by pursuing a policy of essentially dual hostility toward uh, China and Russia, we have made our challenge internationally much more difficult than it might otherwise be. I mean, it seems incredibly short-sighted. And again, if you look look at the examples that you spell out in your book, of all the missed opportunities over the last um, 30 years, it seems like it, it really didn't have to be this way. Um now, we, we talk about the situation in the Donbass region, these two breakaway republics. It definitely seems like 
whether it's in the Donbass region with uh, Donetsk and Luhansk or in Crimea back in 2014, that a big part of the population, which is made up of ethnic Russians, would actually prefer to either be part of Russia or to be part of, uh, you know, a, a sovereign independent republic that is at least uh, associated with Russia. And it seems like there's not a lot of folks that are commenting on this and asking the question, what do the people in this region actually want? Do you have any idea what the folks in this region would actually prefer? And to what extent should the international community honor their self-determination? Well, uh, to some degree, that's an unknowable question. I I think anybody that says, well, you know, I know what these people actually want, uh, they've got an agenda. Uh, The only way you really would know is to hold elections with, um, you know, legitimate international monitoring uh, that everyone can say, okay, this is a legitimate vote. Um, Now, even that is going to be controversial because so many people have left the region. that's been at war uh, since 2014. So um, to know, you know, who the residents of that region actually are, uh, let alone what they feel is a very difficult thing to say. Um, I think the the window of opportunity for for having that kind of vote is over at this point. Uh, Once the Russian military has recognized the independence of of these uh, republics, and occupied uh, that region, uh, you no longer have uh, an opportunity to hold a vote that anybody in the world would consider legitimate because of those conditions. So I I think that would have been a way forward in principle, um, but uh, practically speaking, um, that's no longer possible. In your view, do you think that uh, Vladimir Putin, if you were to predict Will he continue westward? There have been some predictions, including some warnings out of uh, the Biden administration, that he may go all the way into Kiev. Uh, Do you think that's likely? I do think it's likely that he's going to go at least uh, to the outskirts of Kiev. I I expect Russian forces are going to proceed to the Dnieper River, um, possibly taking Odessa, uh, on the coast, the southern coast of Ukraine, and uh, potentially um, capturing all of uh, Ukraine's southern coastline. I don't expect that he will uh, move forces all the way to the west to take the entirety of Ukrainian territory. Um, that would be very difficult for the Russian military to pull off. Uh, he would be faced with partisan warfare. It would be quite bloody. It would be uh, difficult to hold territory in the West if he were to conquer it. Um, And his rhetoric has been such in explaining what Russia is doing as to talk about parts of of currently uh, constituted Ukraine as artificially sewn together, as including uh, old parts of Poland and the Austro-Hungarian Empire that aren't really legitimately part of Ukraine itself in his view. That suggests he doesn't intend to go all the way to the West and to take that part of uh, Ukrainian territory. So my guess is he's going to be very pragmatic about how far the Russian military goes. 
Uh, and whether he, he pushes into Kiev itself uh, is an open question in my mind. It, whether Putin stays where he is, uh, meaning in the Donbass region, or whether he goes increasingly westward, what should the response from the United States be? If you were advising President Biden now, and I know you've advised senior government officials and been part of the government yourself uh, for a long time, if you were advising President Biden now, what would you encourage him to do? How should he handle this? Well, I think the, the biggest interest that the United States has in all of this right now is to avoid uh, an unintentional uh, escalation spiral into a direct uh, conflict between the United States and Russia. Now, Biden has said that we're not going to go to war. We're not going to use U.S. military forces directly against Russia. Uh, but that, uh, unfortunately, doesn't mean that we might not find ourselves in a situation where we are eyeball to eyeball uh, with the Russians, despite that. Sometimes in international relations, you find yourself in a confrontation that you haven't intended. And, and that's something that we're going to have to be very careful about. Why is that? Well, um, if the Russians continue and we impose new economic sanctions that essentially try to strangle the Russian economy, um, there's an assumption on the part of a lot of people in the West that the Russians will simply grit their teeth and bear it. That's not necessarily how this is going to play out. The Russians have options to strike back against us, and they won't be symmetrical. In other words, the Russians aren't going to simply say, you sanction us, we'll sanction you. They could well say, hey, if you're going to strangle our economy, we can do things that will hurt your economy. Now, what might that look like? Well, the United States economy is completely dependent on the Internet. Uh, our infrastructure, our ability to use credit cards, um, our power plants, our electrical grids, um, our ability to, to move from point A to point B, transfer funds from bank to bank, all of that is dependent on a digital infrastructure that is completely defenseless. We can't stop the Russians from hitting it. So if, if we move forward with some things that are designed to bring the Russian economy to a grinding halt, the Russians could simply say, hey, think again. How would you like your economy to come to a grinding halt? Um, that's a very dangerous scenario because if, if suddenly the Russians – uh, do something like that, that that really sends a shot across the American bow, what do we do? Uh, the emotional reaction to that, the outrage, the pressure uh, politically to do something back, to retaliate, is going to be tremendously high. And under those circumstances, we could easily find ourselves in a confrontation that we hadn't expected. So we've got to be very careful about how we proceed here. So much of your book, which I can't recommend enough, it's called The Russia Trap. Um, so much of your book has to do with how the United States and Russia have misunderstood one another's motives, particularly over the course of the last 30 years. In a nutshell, can you explain to folks how the U.S. and Russia have misunderstood one another's motives. What does the United States think Russia is up to? What does Russia think the United States is up to? Well, 
the United States essentially has come to the conclusion that Russia um, is a threat because of its very nature. Um, psychologists call this kind of phenomenon the, the fundamental attribution error. And, and everybody as individuals is susceptible to this. It's the belief that when I do things that other people find objectionable, it's because of the circumstances, right? I, I had to do this because of the situation I was facing, but I'm not an evil person. I'm a fundamentally good person. Um, but we believe that when other people do things that we find offensive or threatening, it's not because of circumstances that compelled them to do it. It's because, well, they're bad people, right? And that's essentially what has happened between the United States and Russia right now. We look at what the Russians do and we think, well, Putin is evil. He's like Hitler. He's like Stalin. He wants to recreate the Soviet empire. He fundamentally wants to invade other countries and take them over because, well, he's a bad guy. And Russia is this authoritarian menace driven by its very nature to do these things. Now, what that does, in fact, is to take agency away from the United States. It essentially says, well, you know, nothing that we've done has contributed to this problem, and, and there's nothing that we can do about it other than fight back, other than to resist, other than to, to punish and deter. Um, now, the Russians look at this situation and have come to much the same conclusion in reverse. Mm. You know, the United States is punishing us. Why? Because they hate us. They're Russophobic. Um, no matter what we do, you know, they're going to treat us this way because, well, you know, they're bad. Um, and so uh, I think this is a, a, a fundamental error on both parts. Um, and what, what we've decided is that um, there's nothing each side can do, so we're just going to play it out. We're, we're going to fight this out, and power will determine um, how uh, how things go. And right now, the Russians have an advantage. Um, they've got a lot of uh, leverage over the situation on their borders. Um, so we tend to think of the Russians as weak, as a declining power, a middling economy. Um, but when it comes to the ability to affect Outcomes in Ukraine, the Russians have a, a serious advantage mm. over the United States and NATO. George, uh, we're going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate the time, particularly at this early hour. I always learn so much from you. And if anyone's interested in a roadmap for starting to repair U.S.-Russian relations, I do hope uh, that they will check out your book, The Russia Trap. Thank you, George. Thanks, Frank. Uh, George Beebe. If you want to comment on this or anything else for 15 seconds, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. 15 seconds of fame in, in just a moment. There are seven open lines straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It's time for you to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-WABC because it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Stephen is in the Catskills. How you doing, Frank? Keep, keep your eye on the ball. Don't get distracted. 
It's the Democrats. It's not Ukraine. It's not COVID. It's the Democrats. Thanks, Frank. Jeff in Suffolk County. Uh, Ron Klein. Putin's going to eat your lunch, and I hope uh, Trump gets the same pass Hillary got. He was sloppy. Joseph on Staten Island. Thank God Jimmy Otto, the rhino, is gone. Joseph Pitarano for city council. Jay in Cincinnati. Far out, Dr. Sky. I really dig meteorites. The cosmic kid. Frankie in Glendale. Repeat after me. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Emergency. Everyone must get from street. Emergency. Everyone must get from street. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Joe on Staten Island. Frank, should I, uh, with the cyber attack coming, should I take my money out of the bike and leave it in? <laughs> you got me. Robert in Manhattan. If we're going to accept the right of Ukraine to be a sovereign, independent country, then we cannot force the people of eastern Ukraine to be under a Kievan government they don't wish to be part of. And finally, Anthony and Edison. Oh, yes, good morning. After, like, my 20th stint in Facebook jail, I'm looking forward to Trump's truth source, and I think it's time for everybody to start boycotting Facebook and get rid of them for good. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. All right, that about slams the lid on things for today. Uh, the WABC Early News with the great Deb Valentine is coming up next. I will be back at uh, 1 a.m. tomorrow. We've got some interesting things coming your way tomorrow. Bernie and Sid uh, coming up from uh, 6 a.m. until 10 a.m., should be another action-packed show. You want to stay in touch with me, find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano. Uh, and I'm on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash fan. Frank Morano, good day. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.